Welcome to the Rekindling Ministries podcast series. This is episode 3.20, and today we're looking into anger. My name is Shannon Kirkpatrick, and I am the founder of Rekindling Ministries. And my name is Zach Rios, and I'm a student studying youth ministry and pastoral leadership. All right, so we're going to give a, a quick recap of um, what we've been up to this season. Mm-hmm. We're, we're, we're coming towards that elephant in the room episode. In fact, this is the last episode um, before we can do that one. Mm-hmm. So that, that'll be the next one that, that we do. Um, and so I'm going to pretty much just reiterate what I said last week, uh, last two weeks, because it, it, I think it hits home uh, of what we're trying to do with all this, what we're trying to, uh, what we're trying to figure out that what, what life is about. We're specifically focused on evil, sin, wrong, suffering, etc., cetera. Uh, and what is God's complex dynamic reaction to that? One of the things there is the way the mind works, we like things to be kind of just simple and, and consistent, mm-hmm. right? So here's the answer, and it's always this answer. And what we're finding is it's not a simple answer. It's a complex answer, and it's not a static, always the same. It's dynamic. It's shifting depending on all the factors that are going on. That's harder for us mm-hmm. to wrap our mind around. We want the easier answer. And so one of the things that, that, that you and Isaac have been on a journey, and a lot of people who have been doing unpacking with us, is is learning that, boy, this is not simple, it's complex, and it's not static or consistent in that way. It's it's dynamic. And remember the comment uh, that Franny made a month or two ago where we, we define, we have been defining consistent as like yeah. unchanging, um, but it's actually consistent, oh, changing consistent from always the same to always always right. Yeah. Which is a helpful distinction. It's a really helpful distinction. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so we, we've been looking at this complex dynamic and still consistent because it's always right. Um, but not always the same, uh, <laughs> mm-hmm. approach that God is taking to evil, sin, wrongdoing, suffering, etc. And so, so, and with that, what we realize is we're trying to look at each piece. So there's many different pieces to this puzzle. And we're trying to look at each of them accurately uh, and independently first. So, mm-hmm. so we're, we're, we're zooming in on, on one of these pieces. And so you can look back, you know, if you look at, we looked at good and evil and suffering and patience and justice and all, you know, punishment, all these things. Um, we're looking at each one of these pieces individually as accurately as we can. And then, and then as we look at that one, w- what are some of the implications with other related pieces? But we haven't been touching too much on that because we're waiting till we have all the pieces. And this is the last piece of the puzzle. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we're going to put all those pieces together and say, now what picture is forming here? Because what you find is some of the things that we've been discussing, some of the implications you might be having pushback, you the listener. Uh, oh, I don't like that. Or I, I, I disagree with that. That's not what I've been taught. Um, but, and, and we recognize that and we've been okay with it for right mm-hmm. now, because once we put all of this together, you're actually going to see it becomes less problematic, actually becomes a it takes things to another level, mm-hmm. uh, much more beautiful, much more powerful. Uh, I have that much more confidence in God, right? My, mm-hmm. my, my trust in him is increased by going through all these things, right? Being willing to challenge a little bit of, of what, what I was taught, right, uh, or, or whatever. Um, but anyways, another component with that is, um, and someone was just giving me feedback the other day on this. Remember in the spectrum lens we talked about, um, so once you like, you know, you, you, you pick a topic and then you lay out the zero to 100 mm-hmm. and so the zero and the 100. And then you, and so now, by the way, this is not making sense to you. If you haven't listened to the spectrum episode, that's back in season one, you can go listen to that. But so remember how we talked about once you put the zero and the 100, then you put like the, the 20, the 30, yeah. the 40, et cetera. And one of the rules was don't evaluate 
anything while you're, because you're only identifying mm -hmm. and you have to identify all of them along the spectrum, all the different options before you can begin um, to evaluate them. And put the parameters. And yeah. put the parameters, because if you evaluate um, point by point, you're going to evaluate, you can't evaluate accurately mm -hmm. um, because you don't have the full picture yet. Yeah. So and where this came up was just this past Sunday, we were talking about, um, this goes back to the evil uh, section earlier this season, season three, remember we were talking about, we were laying down some groundwork for why this good God might allow evil. Mm -hmm. And we said that, you know, we're not saying that the Bible clearly teaches this. We are saying the Bible at least implies it and it doesn't contradict scripture. And it seems to be the best explanation we could come up with. And so we had all those points like there was the, the, uh, irrevocable, limited, significant free will, and there was the moral responsibility. Then there was the fact of there are certain certain beneficial goods that God desperately wants us to experience can only occur in the presence of evil, and we started listing each of those out. Mm -hmm. And so remember how I'm in the process of memorizing those. So um, like sacrifice, forgiveness, uh, growth slash transformation, quenching, um, comforting, yeah. uh, contrast, the triumph of good over evil. These are all things that can only, they're all beneficial goods to mm -hmm. experience, but they can only occur if there is evil and sin. And so one of the things I was saying in the class on Sunday was, now, if you look at just one of these, let's say, for example, um, the like the quenching of thirst. So it's, it's a really cool, pleasant experience to have your thirst quenched, but you can only experience that quenching if you're thirsty. Mm -hmm. And so that's one of the arguments for this prologue of a bunch of evil and sin. If you're looking at just that one and you say, no, wait a minute, God allowed for 6,000 plus years of, of evil and sin just so that we could experience the beneficial good of getting our thirst quenched, right? Yeah. Weak it's argument. Weak <laughs> argument. But if you put all of them together, mm -hmm. it makes for the stronger argument. So I was telling the class, please do not evaluate each one of these one by one because you'll swipe. You'll swipe them away mm -hmm. each time. Nope. Not, enough, you know, not good enough. Not good enough. Not good enough. Not good mm -hmm. enough. The thing is, they don't happen individually. They happen all together. And so you want to look at all of them together, and then it's harder to swipe. Yeah. Right? It makes sense. So the same idea here with all these these episodes we've been doing. You may want to be like listening listening to one of the episodes. Nope. And you just swipe it away. Mm -hmm. We're encouraging you to listen to all the episodes, and it's going to be harder to swipe away. Yeah, and that just reminded me of back when I was in high school, we did something called Science Olympiad, and one of the things was we made towers out of balsa wood which balsa wood is super flimsy. Like mm -hmm, you mm -hmm. you can literally blow on it and break it. Right. But then when you actually build it together and you build a structure out of it, it can hold hundreds of pounds. And so that's really kind of what you're getting at. Which mm -hmm. it, Not to say that all of these are really weak, flimsy arguments, um, but the idea well, we, that yeah. you have to build them together and then look at the whole structure to see if it actually holds any weight. Uh, you know another example? So we just had, of course, uh, Hurricane Florence mm -hmm. come through south of us. Um, and I was watching a video about how animals are dealing with it, like the horses on the islands <laughs> there. They survived. None of them got, none of them got hurt or killed. Uh, but it was in the video. They were talking about fire ants. And they had, they had video footage of all these, like a big swarm of fire ants. And they come together and they, they, they interlock with themselves and they create this weave. And the weave allows them to float. And so the, so the actual video is kind of like, you know, disgusting. <laughs> but it was this big weave of fire ants floating down the river from all the flooding that was occurring. Huh. And individually they would have drowned. Mm -hmm. um, but together they, they're able to survive. And so it still comes back to, so we've, you know, this is episode 3.20. So their 20th episode in this season. And actually more than that. Yeah. Cause, cause there's like sub episodes. A and B and and, yeah. Um, so we're looking at, I think 25 or 26 total episodes so far. 
each one of these were these, you know, this individual little fire ant or this, this individual little piece of the puzzle uh, or the individual balsa wood, right? Mm-hmm. And like you said, it's not that, that these are flimsy yeah. um, and they're only strong when together. We feel they're actually strong individually too, mm-hmm. but extra strong when you come together. So here, here's that last piece that we're going to go over tonight. Um, and then the, the next episode, uh, we'll try to put all that stuff together, mm-hmm. how, how long ever that episode is going <laughs> to last. But anyways, so that's what we've been doing all season three. And so we've had these, these 17 or, or 18 episodes that we've covered faith and Christian maturity or sanctification and hope and heaven, love, glory, interdeterminism, good, evil and sin, suffering, prayer, grieving, righteousness and justice, judgment and punishment, grace, mercy, and then and then now this this last one, uh, anger. So so we've been trying to be really intentional about breaking each of these down carefully, trying to get to the core root. What's what's the core definition of this concept scripturally? And then what are what are some of the details and nuances? How does it play out? Some of the some of the complexities. And then what are those uh, subsequent implications and, and application? Um, and then taking all those right and put it into this big puzzle. So that we've been talking about the um, this elephant in the room. Mm-hmm. And so what is the elephant in the room is realizing that when you actually put all this stuff together, we have we the we Christians have been taking a little more simplistic, easier route mm-hmm. in how we deal with sin and all right, all these different things. And what we're finding is we really shouldn't be taking this easier, simple route. We need to be taking this this much more difficult, complex route, mm-hmm. which we don't want to do because it's harder. Yeah. Um, but we're finding that it's actually much more powerful, much more beautiful, mm-hmm. and it really takes our understanding of God uh, to another level. And so, yeah. Yeah, and what that really comes back to is something that we've been talking about, that we need to apply the details of the Bible to the details of our lives. Because it's pretty easy, like, for example, to say, yeah, I love people. Um, And just thinking, like, yeah, I'm nice to people. I don't try and, um, like, I'm not actively mean to people. But when you understand what 1 Corinthians 13 says when it talks about love, that you're not irritated, you're not keeping record of wrongs, you're being useful towards the individual. You're always trusting. And all of these different factors, which we've elaborated on, but then also that that's to your enemy, that's where the details come out. Mm-hmm. And what we've really been doing going through is we've been looking at some of the different details of all of this. And it's been painting, which we're g- going to get to even more next episode. It's been painting this picture of what all of this looks like together, which isn't actually in a lot of ways different necessarily from what we've been taught in the church. There's just another layer to it. Mm-hmm, and the mm-hmm. picture's a lot clearer. Mm-hmm. And so it's much, much more difficult because you can actually see how it all fits together, and especially with love kind of undergirding everything, right. um, it's really hard to do that well. And so it's less about that what we've been taught or what we believe is wrong, yeah. more about it was incomplete. Mm-hmm. Um, or a little simplified. Yeah, uh, out of focus a little bit. Yep, Mm -hmm. and that goes back to that quote that we always say, you know, let the Bible paint the picture that it wants to paint. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so... So that that's where we're at. That that's that's what we're up to. And so with that, go ahead and give us. So the last episode was mercy, mm-hmm. but go ahead and three episodes ago was punishment because punishment is going to tie in. Yeah, it really does to anger here. Yeah, go ahead and give us a quick recap of the punishment and then a, re- a recap of of mercy. Okay, so punishment we talked about and we said that it's something that comes about. It's um something that comes about and 
a component of it that we typically leave out of the discussion is the fact that with God, punishment is restorative. So the purpose of it is to bring people to himself. Mm-hmm. And so from, if we want to put this on a timeline, like zero to 90, there's a, t- a lot of time of just patient warning uh, is what we see. And so just kind of that gentle nudge, hey, you, you need to not be doing what you're doing. You need mm-hmm. to come back to me. At 91, it gets upped. Right, and we that, haven't been listening. Yeah, you haven't been listening. You've been ignoring the Holy Spirit. So then it changes from a warning to actual infliction. And this is intense affliction from 91 to 99 of still that restorative nature, God trying to bring you back. That's the whole purpose. Of yeah, it. the whole purpose. Because a, a lot of times we tend to think of punishment as just retributive, harm for harm. You did something bad to someone, so something bad has to happen to you. That's not actually what... Punishment is all about when God's doing it. Mm -hmm. He's trying to bring us back to himself. He realizes that we're causing detriment for another person. He realizes that we've primarily turned away from him and his beneficial things and secondarily to other things, Mm -hmm. which goes back to the definition of evil and sin. To other things that are detrimental and outside his parameters. Yes. Yep. And so since that's happening, he's going to warn us and then he's going to afflict us to cause us to come back. We recognize that after 99, there really does seem to be this 100, which is just a purging. And so if you're not listening, if you're not coming back, then uh, this is the idea of God taking you off the chessboard. Right. And then we also do recognize that there is some sort of retributive punishment. um, But it really does seem that that happens in Gehenna, the lake of fire. And so that is really where we see that. And it's not in the day-to-day punishment that we would typically think of. Yep. So so another way to say that is realizing that when it comes to punishment, there's kind of three kinds of punishment or three purposes, to, three types based on purpose. Mm-hmm. So there's the restorative, because what is a punishment? It's some affliction. It's, it's causing some, you know, negative or uncomfortable thing. Mm-hmm. Um, why? So the first type is that restorative punishment, whether it first starts off as that, zero to 90 warning and then 91 99 affliction but but all of that all of that is for restorative the whole point of god using that punishment Mm -hmm. is to get you to come back to him and what is good because he knows that him and what is good is the best place you can ever be yeah and then the second type is that purging removing from the chessboard and then the third type is the the vengeance the retribution the punitive elements kind of a harm for harm and it, like you said, it seems that that's mostly reserved for Gehenna. There might be times in this life where God does a, um, a punitive, uh, retributive punishment, but it seems pretty rare, and mm-hmm. we're going to come back to that later when, when, with the anger. Another thing that I'll say with that is I realize now kind of this, this um, the knockout punching we've been talking about could actually mm-hmm. go well here. So so imagine, so of course, I watch my, my Monday night WWE <laughs> Raw wrestling and, mm-hmm. and Tuesday night SmackDown and, and all that. Um, and then you have you know your uh, boxing matches and you have your... Um, uh, MMA, right? All that stuff. So another way, another analogy that we can give is that that 100, that purging is a knockout punch. The 91 to 99 is some like submission hold. Um, and so from zero to, to 90, it's a ton of patience, a ton of gentleness. It's these, it's just these warnings, conviction, like you said, just trying to get you back. Um, and, and if he, uh, if that's not working, and you're still trying to fight him, 
then what he's going to do is he's going to up the ante and he's going to put a submission hold on you. And the whole point of the submission hold is to get you to tap, right? To yeah. get you to repent, yeah. to get you to turn back to him. Or if you're so stubborn and you're, and you're not going to repent, then it's going to knock you out. Um, and so one of the things that we talked about was, so if, so it sounds like that, that 91 to 99 affliction, severe restorative punishment, and that 100, that, that purging punishment is pretty successful. Like they're, they're both batting a thousand, so to speak, Mm -hmm. as far as, um, when he does that, it works. Mm -hmm. So you, you either, so at that point, once he gets to that, where he's putting on the submission hold or the knockout punch, once he gets there, then the the fight's done Mm -hmm. because either you're tapping out, repenting, coming back to him or you're knocked unconscious, you know, killed, right. Yeah. Uh, Et cetera. So one of the things that we brought up was, well, if that's so effective, why doesn't he just start the match with that? Hmm. Why, why let, why let that battle between you and him go for 90 rounds where he's just like mildly warning you, you know, and, and because he's patient, all that kind of deal. Why do 90 rounds of that before he gets to these, the submission, the purging? Um, why, why not start at the beginning of that? What would you say to that? I think that a lot of that is due to his patience and uh, love and just some of these other attributes. But then also because of the, let's see if I remember it, limited, significant, irrevocable free will. Mm-hmm. Uh, just the fact that he has given humans the choice to submit or not. And so he's not going to jump straight to um, making us submit or removing the option of submitting is mm-hmm. really what purging does. Mm-hmm. And I think another element is even as humans, we can convince people to do things mm-hmm. through force. But that's not nearly as uh, impactful for us. It's not as uh, satisfying. Even. Right, right. If we do that, but if someone just out of love, we can convince someone to do something, mm-hmm. it just means so much more to them mm-hmm. and to us. So, and so I really think that that's an element of this as well. This goes back to um, the inner determinism episode mm-hmm. that you have the um, soft determinism and hard determinism. And so soft determinism is influential. Hard determinism is basically irresistible. Mm-hmm. So when he starts getting to the, the tap out submission hold or the knockout punch, it's, you're now moving into e- either hard determinism or really, 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 really strong soft determinism yeah. uh, all the way up to the kind of that border of that. Um, and, and, and go back to inner determinism. So that's not exactly what he wants just because it's just what you said. Mm-hmm. So yeah, so it's interesting there, right? Mm-hmm. Anyways, so yeah, so that, that was a quick recap of, of punishment. And we're, and we're going to probably come back to that several times in this episode. And then go ahead and give us the, the recap of, uh, of mercy. So with mercy, we said that there were two different types of mercy that we see in Scripture. There is compassion mercy, which is kind of what we think of automatically when we think of mercy and compassion is also kind of self-explanatory just aiding people that are in need actually um that's a practical application of love just all these different things you see somebody in need your heart kind of breaks and so you contribute and and so you help them compassion mercy and the other component that we spent most of the time talking about was this forgiveness mercy and so we define that as moving the responsibility for compensation and retribution over to god and going to him for that compensation which really allows us to regain goodwill towards the wrongdoer. What does that mean? What that means is, as people, what we need to do is when someone sins against us, 
we need to not go to them to get um, compensated. compensated. And real quick, we'll say with that, so justice, which is that making of things right, mm-hmm. would say that one must be compensated yeah, for the wrong mm-hmm. one experiences. So if you've been wronged, if you've experienced some sort of suffering, then justice would say you absolutely need to be compensated. Mm-hmm. So that's encouraging. Forgiveness. Yeah, and so what we're doing is since there should be compensation, justice tells us that, what forgiveness is doing is forgiveness is transferring the debt of compensation from whoever it is that wronged you onto God. Mm-hmm. And so going to him for that. And going to him for that compensation. And so it really makes a lot of sense that as people, that's what we would want to do because God's going to be able to compensate us so much more effectively than this person that has already proved themselves mm-hmm. to not be very good right. at interaction or however you want to define and that. And this perfect loving God's offering it. Yeah. And so that really is what we need to do. And so instead of trusting in the individual that just wronged us, we need to instead trust in God and mm-hmm. the authority that he delegates to take care of any discipline or punishment because yeah. the coupled with um, the compensation is the idea that we want them to suffer some sort of wrong because because we yep. were wrong, yep. which isn't biblical. We talked about in the justice episode that the wrongdoer also needs to be restored. Mm-hmm. And so that's the idea of we need to actually trust God that he's going to take care of the punishment and discipline side mm-hmm. of things because he's going to do a much better at it. And, job and there at it might than we be are. some harm for harm retribution as part of this justice plan, but yeah. that's on God to not do, on not us. us. Mm-hmm. And, and then also with, you, you mentioned delegating to authority. So it's, it's like, mm-hmm. we can't go to the wrongdoer for the compensation. We have to go to God. And then also we can't be the ones to punish uh, the wrongdoer. Mm-hmm. We have to leave that to God also, or if God delegates to authority figures, mm-hmm. authority figures could be government, could be a pastor, could be a parent, etc. Mm-hmm. So for example, if you are authority figure, um, and you get wronged, you may be you the may one to. to delegate that. You know, so if your kid wrongs you as a parent, but that's that's the it, exception, mm-hmm. right? And that. we talk more about that nuance in the episode. In the episode, right? And uh, another component of this is reconciliation. That's something that comes up a lot of times with forgiveness. What does that actually look like, and what should it look like? Well, something that we need to keep in mind with reconciliation is that one, it's a separate issue from forgiveness. Mm-hmm. And so we need to it's always stage after. Yeah, we need to always forgive wrongdoers, especially to us. Um, but that doesn't mean that reconciliation also is they're not tied to each other. Yeah, because because the idea was whether the uh, wrongdoer repents or not, you still have to forgive them. Yeah. Reconciliation, though really only can occur if the wrongdoer has repented. And so mm-hmm. if they've acknowledged that they've done wrong and they're willing to train and uh, change their actual behavior. And so once that happens, then we actually do need to reconcile with them. But that's not automatically going to happen. Right. So then the forgiveness stage, you're releasing yourself of anger. You're going to God for the compensation. You're mm-hmm. trusting in God and his delegated authority to take care of any sort of punishment or discipline. And so you're regaining goodwill towards that person. And you're willing to sit at the reconciliation. And that's all, all that's no matter what. Mm-hmm. And you're willing to sit at the reconciliation table um, if the wrongdoer comes around, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and it's really, and this goes back to also, uh, you should also grieve the suffering, which goes back yeah. to the to the grieving study. So yeah. 
Um, good. And then one thing I'll say too, I mentioned to you before the episode with justice, we we're talking about over, over the weekend and another class. And so you need to go back to the justice study, but justice is a making of things right. And we talked about sometimes it seems like God isn't making things right. Mm-hmm. And so is he not being just in the moment? This is all from the book of Job. And so one of the comments that we had made on Sunday was, you know, Job goes to God and he says, because one of the things we were talking about was, one of the major points of, of the book of Job is watching God correct Job's theology. Hmm. That at the beginning of the book, him and his friends have bad theology, and so they have wrong conclusions because of bad theology. And then by the end of the book, after his two speeches, God corrects Job of that, and Job comes around, right? Hmm. And so that was uh, that's a great thing. He's making Job more right. Um, he, Job was righteous in his behavior, but not necessarily his thinking. Um, and so he's making more, Job more right. So what we said was, you know, Job came to God and he says, God, you know, it's, I think you're just, but you're not making things right. Hmm. And God's response is, I am. And Job is like, no, no, how are you making things right? I can list off all these bad things that has happen, happened to me and my family. Um, and God's like, I'm making things right because I'm realigning your theology and your thinking to come closer to me. Hmm. And so that was a really cool component that, that we realized was that God is always just, and so he's always acting justly. That doesn't mean that all wrongs are getting righted. Hmm. Um, that Because we see wrong occur all the time. Mm-hmm. It's that God knows the rights that most need to happen, um, and it doesn't always seem that way to us because of our distorted thinking but we need to trust in him mm-hmm. on that. So that's kind of cool. Um, all right. So thanks for the recap of that. Mm-hmm. Let's move into the, uh, the topic at hand. So what I want to do now, there's a little bit of, you know, as you're listening, you know, you already kind of know what this episode's about, but I like to do this exercise um, to kind of like surprise people a little bit and, and get them rethinking things somewhat. <laughs> and so imagine I'm, I'm sitting in a, uh, a classroom with people. Imagine I've got, up on the overhead projector or the computer screen or on the whiteboard or the chalkboard or whatever, whatever form of technology form you have, have. That we're using. Um, I've written a number of verses and I wrote, I write what, you know, the, the verse reference itself. And then I write the verse out, but I've went ahead and redacted um, some, uh, uh, some key words. And, and, and all of these verses are talking about this concept. And so we're going to call the concept X. Okay. And so these are a, these are not all the verses, but these are a bunch of, of key verses uh, about X. And so 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 you come into the class and you sit down and you see all these sentences and it's talking about you know all, they're all referencing X, but whatever X is, I just write the word X. So you don't you don't know what X is yet. Mm-hmm. And so I'm going to read off each of these 16 statements, uh, and then when I'm done, before I reveal to you mm-hmm. what the X concept is. I'm going to ask you what what are you what are you thinking about X? Okay, does that make sense? Yep. Okay. So, first one. It said there's 16, but I'm trying to hammer the, the point home. So Psalm 37:8 says, "Cease from X and forsake X. Do not X. It leads only to evil doing." And Proverbs 14:29 says, "He who is slow to X has great understanding, but he who is quick to X exalts folly." Proverbs 16.32 says, He who is slow to X is better than the mighty, and he who rules his spirit than he who captures a city. Proverbs 19.11, A man's discretion or his intelligence makes him slow to X, and it is his glory to overlook a transgression. Proverbs 22.24, Do not associate with a man given to X, or go with a, uh, a man of X. 
Proverbs 29.8, scorners set a city aflame, but a wise man turn away X. Proverbs 30.33, for the churning of milk produces butter, and the pressing the nose brings forth blood, so the churning of X produces strife. Ecclesiastes 7.9, do not be eager in your heart to be X, for X resides in the bosom of fools. Going into the New Testament, Matthew 5, 22, But I say to you that everyone who is X shall be guilty before the court. 1 Corinthians 13, 5, Love does not let itself X. It does not take wrong into, uh, into an account, or does not uh, suffer, right? Mm-hmm. Um, 2 Corinthians twelve twenty. For I'm afraid that perhaps when I come, I may find you to, to, not, to be not what I wish, and may be found by you to be what, not what you wish. That perhaps there's going to be strife, jealousy, X, disputes, slanders, gossip, arrogance, disturbances. Paul was talking about coming to the, to the mess of the church that was Corinth, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, Galatians 5, 19 to 21. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, X, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, of which I I forewarn you, just as I forewarn you that those who practice such things will not inherit in the kingdom of God. Ephesians 4.31, let all bitterness and X and X and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Colossians 3.8, but now you also put them all aside, X, X, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. 1 Timothy 2.8, Therefore I want the men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without X and dissension. And then the last one, James 1.19-20, This you know, my beloved brethren, but everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to X, for man's X does not achieve the righteousness of God. So, if, if you didn't know anything, right, you, mm-hmm. you were just coming at this with a blank mind, what would you guess? What, what, what are some of your thoughts about X? One of the first initial thoughts is that's a lot of verses that say not very good things about whatever this X is. Whatever right. X is. Like, and it's not just that they're saying don't be X or avoid X, even though they, there are a couple specific verses that Same literally that. say that. But like Galatians 5, it lists it with the works of the flesh. Um, some of the, what were there? Some of the other ones that specifically jumped out. The, like um, all these things that you should be removing from yourself. Yeah. Because along with saying, don't be X, cease from X. Don't be eager in your heart to be X. X all, resides in the bosom of fools. Yeah. All of these different things. It's also coupled with X pr- produces negative things. Mm-hmm. And so it's not just like, uh, j- just avoid X. It's also explains why we should be avoiding X. And it, it's just, as you go through that whole list, it makes it hard to say, you know, whatever that thing is, I want to, I want to do that. Right. Based off of just these verses and not knowing what X is all about. So, uh, X of course is anger. Mm -hmm. Uh, and, and when some of the verses, when I say like X and X, it's anger and wrath is the second X. Anyways, so why, why do this exercise? Because this is probably going to be one of the most controversial episodes that we do as far as pushback from mm-hmm. people. That when people listen to us, they're going to say, no, 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 I disagree with that. 
Um, and I'll go ahead and kind of spoiler and just say it. My conclusion is um, the mature believer, um, there's no place for anger in the life of a mature believer. They will not use anger, period. And we're, because when we talk about how this stuff is not sim- simple, it's complex, um, we can't say that anger itself is a sin mm-hmm. because God uses anger. Yeah. But what we're finding is from the text, and we're going to go through all this, um, is that that anger itself is not a sin. God, God uses it and uses it wisely and, and awesomely. Um, but it is a sin when man uses anger. Mm-hmm. Why? So I, I'm going to go ahead and get the theory now, then we can break down okay. why we hold all this. Um, why? Because anger is so powerful, only the perfect, all-knowing, all-loving, all-powerful God knows how to use it. Hmm. And because it is so powerful, we don't know how to use it, therefore we're not supposed to use it. And we're going to get into... Um, well, we, we can kind of say this now, but also kind of with that is... People want to say, well, but Shannon, that's a difference between like just the regular human anger and then righteous anger. And so all of these passages are, yeah, yeah, don't do that regular kind of anger. Yeah. They're not saying um, that you can't have righteous anger. And so, again, we're kind of jumping ahead to the end, and then we're going to walk you through all this. Mm -hmm. How many times does the phrase righteous anger... So remember, there's 31,107 verses in the Bible. Yep. And remember how most of these unpackings, I think grace shows up 400 or 500 times. Mm-hmm. Love showed up around 1,400 times. Evil and sin was like 3,400 times, right? Yeah. That get, kind of gives you ballpark. I think patience was like 750 times to ballpark. Um, and, and, and we'll go through here in a moment. Um what the dimensions of anger are. But anyways, how many times out of the 31,107 verses would you guess, of course, you know the answer to this already, um, but imagine <laughs> you didn't know. Yeah. Ma- imagine you're kind of just the typical uh, Christian. How many times does the term righteous anger, how many times is that stated specifically in Scripture? Well, because um, I, I hear it all the time. Mm-hmm. I, I, I've heard it from professors. I've heard it from friends. I've heard it from a number of different people. And so it would have to be, I don't think it's very, like, I, I wouldn't think that it's very often, um, probably just a handful and then maybe some implied at best mm-hmm. type verses. But I mean, I would hope that there would be at least like half a dozen. Yeah. Um, there's zero. The, the phrase righteous anger never shows up in scripture. Hmm. Now, one, and you and I have, have, been kind of interviewing people, mm-hmm. right? And with this, uh, for me, for the last year or two, you as we've been yeah. kind of prepping for all this. Anyways, what we've been hearing is the argument of, but but Shan, that's just a given. Mm-hmm. That that righteous anger is a given. Maybe the scripture doesn't use that phrase. Yeah, but um, it's implied. But it's still, all still over implied all over. And and we we're going to challenge that mm-hmm. in this episode. Um, and what we're going to find is. Instead of this dichotomy of there's like the bad human anger and then like the good righteous anger, the dichotomy seems to actually be there's a divine use of anger and a human use of anger. Mm -hmm. And the divine use of anger is legit and awesome and terrible, you know, in the the mighty kind of way. Uh, It's very intense. Uh, Human anger never goes to good. So the, and, and the thing is, is so the question is, can humans perform a divine use of anger 
And the argument is, no, only divinity can do that. Mm-hmm. So only God can do the divine use of anger. And, and man can't do it, and so man is prohibited mm-hmm. uh, from using anger because we don't know how. And we're, and we're going to break all this stuff down, but I wanted to go ahead and like throw it out there right from the get-go yeah. and, then, and then try to persuade you through all this stuff. So the actual outline for this, class, for this episode, we're actually first going to go into what is anger mm-hmm. and then what is that divine use of anger and what does it mean that God uses anger. We're going to go through all of that and nail all that down, mm-hmm. and then we're going to segue into what does, the, that, mean? The, well, yeah, what does that mean for, uh, for humans. Um, so we're just gonna we're gonna throw that out there uh, right from the get-go um, to, uh, to to show you so with that let's go ahead and uh, get into I feel like there's something else I wanted to say and I forgot it and if I think of it I'll, I'll come back to it um, but just remember that dichotomy mm-hmm. is kind of is kind of what we're getting at um, anyways so there is one thing that ahead. maybe while you're thinking I can say this I know a lot of times when I hear something that I disagree with, I stop and I think about that and I focus on that and it causes me to miss a lot of what the person's actually saying. And so I would encourage you that if you do have pushback with what Shannon just laid out, that this idea that humans can't actually use anger correctly, I really would encourage you to, um, I mean, obviously at this point you've recognized that you disagree initially with that statement. Hopefully the 16 verses that we just laid out have started to paint a picture of, well, maybe there's something to this. I really would encourage you to grab a hold of that, maybe there's something to this, and just hear us out on what we're about to present because I just don't want you to be listening to this and immediately dismiss based off of what you've heard right? and then miss what we're going to try and present. So we're, I, I'm not saying just accept it right now. I, I recognize because I have talked to a number of different people and this is something that has been communicated that people can actually have anger and we can do good things with it but I really would encourage you to just pause that and hear out what we're going to describe here right before you make that decision and that and that um I know I already know the verses you know if, if you're listening and let's say we let's say we had a you know call-in session and you call in <laughs> Um, Zach and I both already know yeah. the exact verses you're going to bring up, and we're going to address those verses. We're going we're to get there when we when we get there. Um, but but the big thing for me was going back to those 16 passages, reading um, anger resides in the bosom of fools. That was in Ecclesiastes, and then in Ephesians and in Colossians, the phrases twice: rid yourself of all anger. And then in James, man's anger cannot accomplish God's righteousness. Those were the big four for me. Yeah. So it was it was Ecclesiastes, whatever it was, and then Ephesians four and Colossians, I think three, and then James one. I couldn't get past them. Hmm. Like those hit me like a ton of bricks, and it made me think. Now, hold on, because I always just assumed righteous anger was legit. Mm-hmm. But these phrases are saying get rid of anger, and and they weren't they weren't distinct distinguishing between <laughs> some sort of righteous anger and, and yeah. other anger. It was just saying anger. Hmm. So yeah. so so that's why that's why we started with this is just you know Shannon, where are you coming from this? This is just another example of you just pushing back because you can push back. No, 
This is when I was doing the study the first time around, reading those passages. And even and also, too, another thing came out when we did the patient study and finding that patience is a refraining from anger mm-hmm. or releasing oneself of anger. That had kind of planted the seed. And then these verses kind of watered the seeds. And so it, it allowed me to say just what you were encouraging the listener to do, Zach. It allowed me to say, all right, let me come to this unpacking study as open-minded as I can with no presuppositions, no assumptions to see what the text said. And it was amazing what came out of it. Yeah. And just to add, because you said some of the verses that really stuck out to you, two that, um, in addition to the ones you said, two that stuck out to me. One is Psalm 37, 8, cease from anger and forsake wrath. Do not fret. It leads only to evil doing. And then also Ecclesiastes 7, 9, do not be eager in your heart to be angry, for mm. anger resides in the bosom of fools. And, you know, it's interesting, too, because because we're going to talk about how God can use anger, man can't. And so if, if anger and fret and these things lead to evil, well, we know that God can't do evil. God yeah. cannot, cannot, cannot sin. Um, so he can stop himself from there. We can't. Mm-hmm. And, then, and then we're also going to find um, God is not eager to be angry. He's not quick to be angry. In fact, he's very slow to anger. We're going to go through all that. Um, so hopefully you'll, you'll, you'll let us kind of come through all this. So with that, um, let's go through the, the specifics of the study. Um, so as always, you know, we start first with what's the, um, the family of words uh, that we're going to use in, in looking this study up. And so I looked up angered, angered, angry, total, total of 365 times. So 345 times in the Old Testament and 20 in, in the New. And then wrath, wrathful, which is 194 times. Enrage, enraged, fury, furious, furiously, rage, provoke, provoked, provoking, provocation, vexed and vexing, indignant and indignation. These are all the words that I looked up. Total 742 times, 658. This is interesting. So... This family of the the anger family, right, mm-hmm. shows up a total of seven hundred and forty two times, six hundred and fifty eight times in the Old Testament, eighty six times in the New Testament. Mm-hmm. That's one of the more radical differences, differences. in numbers that we've seen in, in all of our unpacking studies. Mm-hmm. So that was like another clue, uh, that, and we're going to come back to that. So what you have is in the Old Testament, it comes out like um, this this anger concept is mentioned uh, once every two pages. In the New Testament, it's like once every four point two pages. Hmm. So it's it's much rarer in the in the um, uh, the old the New Testament. Um, now, also when I was doing this, there was a correlation because hate came up, and I knew that anger and hate hate were the, were not the same thing, but there was some correlation between the two. So we went ahead and included that in the study here. So I looked up the whole hate, hateful, hating, hatred, 189 times, abhor or abhorrence or abhorrent, 46 times, detest, 45 times. Um, there were some other words like despise and despicable and loathe that also came into play there. But the the um, the hate things was a total of 390 times. 337 old in the Old Testament, 53 in the New Testament. So hmm. you still see kind of that correlation. And so when we get into the Hebrew and Greek, we're going to explain what, what, what we think is going on there. Another little note with this one. Um, this, I, I'm, this is one that I'm, I'm not as confident in as I am other studies. And I don't, I don't say that to mean, oh, then we don't need to listen. These are things that we've been super intentional, super thorough. We try to explore. We've spent 
we've tried to record this several times now, yeah. uh, at least twice, but we've stopped because we were still trying to talk through things. So I think mm -hmm. we've talked like five or six hours of just prepping this before yeah. or more than actually. And just on anger. Just like, on anger. Just yeah. this. So it, it is one. Well, I guess what, what I'll say is we haven't nailed this one down completely. There were some issues that Zach and I, as we were talking through, were like, now what does that mean? And we just didn't know some of the nuances. And I, I do want to kind of show our cards a little bit on that. Most of our discussion was with some of the nuance with God's anger. Right. With the right. issue of um, what should a mature, how should a mature believer interact with anger? That really does seem to be quite clear from Scripture. Yeah, so I do, I, I do want to clarify yeah. that part. That yes, there is a lot of nuance when you start talking about God and His interaction with anger, which is very important to understand. Um, but there is a, so much clarity on what Scripture actually says about man's the believer anger. and yep. man's anger. Yep. Good. So yeah, thank you for clarifying that. Um, and that's just, I just want to be honest with everything. Mm -hmm. right? yeah. uh, all right, so now we can get into this. So, so we, we look up the family of words. Then we look up all of the, the Hebrew and Aramaic and Greek wording in the, in the original text um, that are then translated in this family of words. Mm -hmm. So we're going we're gonna to kind of rapid fire these off for you. And, and as you're listening, uh, you know, why we take the time to do this, it's just so you can kind of see some of the patterns that, that show up in the, in the definitions of these words. So one of the words is anaf, and it means to breathe hard or to be enraged or angry. Off is literally a nostril and anger. So just kind of that idea of flaring your nostrils. Yeah, and that's the one that it's 221 times. That's the one that's used the most mm -hmm. for anger. So when someone gets angry, when the text is the literal, the hyper literal is their, their nostrils flared. Yeah. Right. Um, and then we have kema or kara. Uh, it means heat or burning anger or rage to be burned or be kindled to anger. Kaas is to trouble, grieve, enrage, vex, provoke, or make indignant. Uh, abar ebra, full of wrath or arrogance, an outburst of passion, anger, rage, or wrath. Katsaf or Ketsaf is to be angry, enraged, furious, provoked, displeased. Also the idea of wrath and indignation. Regaz, rage, or violent anger. Agnab and those, those are the Hebrews, so now moving into Greek. Yep. Uh, agnaptico is grieved, greatly afflicted, sorely displeased, or indignant. Thumos is fierce passion, indignation, or wrath. Orge is excited desire, violent passion, ire, anger, abhorrence, indignation, or wrath. Orgizo is to provoke or enrage, to make exasperated. Parapolico ordero or par Para, para picrano. Oh, para picrano or para picramas is to irritate. Paroxuno, to sharpen alongside or stir or provoke. Proxtizo is to be vexed, indignant, or grieved. So those were all the, the anger Words. uh, wordings. Mm -hmm. So then looking at the, uh, the hate or hatred wordings, uh, booze is to despise or scorn. Baza is to despise, have disdain, or contempt for. Ga'al is to detest, abhor, loathe, or reject. Ma'as is to spurn, reject, cast off, abhor, uh, loathe, despise, or disdain. Nats is to spurn or treat with contempt or blaspheme. Shut is to despise or scorn. Sane is to hate or detest or something odious. Shakats is to detest, abhor, uh, detestable, 
or a filth object. Uh, Toba is an abomination, something loathsome, detestable, or a disgusting thing. Taab is to abhor, detest, or despise. And then going into the Greek, the apostugego is to abhor, hate, or utterly detest. Uh, the next word... I think just like de, like the B is silent. Is delesumai, is to detest or abhor. I think it's abhor. Abhor, yeah. I, at some point I realized that I was saying that incorrectly <laughs> and I couldn't figure out how to... Yeah, um, that is correct. <laughs> yeah, and then exotheneo is to despise or treat with contempt... Cataporeo is to think little of, despise, or look down on. Maseo is to detest, hate, love less, or even persecute. Stagneto is to hate or detest. So so those are all of the, the Hebrew and the Greek. So then what we do is we look at uh, we Webster and Farlex dictionaries, and we look up each of those concepts and see if we can get some further understanding of this. So this was interesting. So anger... Uh, is a strong feeling of displeasure or hostility. Displeasure is being annoyed or vexed, which can mean irritated, agitated, or distressed. Annoyed means feeling irritated or somewhat angry. Irritated is annoyed or angered. So you can see where they, they all, these all loop together, yeah. right? Um, agitated means to be upset or distressed. Distressed means to be troubled, and so this can be afflicted, grieving, serious, uh Grievously suffering, physically or mentally. And then hostility is an unfriendly, harsh antagonism. Some sort of active resistance, opposition, or quarreling, possibly causing harm. Wrath is a manifestation of forceful, often vindictive or punitive anger. Fury or furious is an extreme or violent anger. To be enraged is violent, explosive anger. Provoked is feeling anger or resentment. And resentment is indignation or ill will due from a feeling of having been wronged. And then indignant is anger aroused by something perceived as unjust, mean, or unworthy. Exasperated is very angry or greatly annoyed. So one of the things that you're seeing there, one, there's, there's, there can be some degree, mm-hmm. right, the intensity of the anger, there's some degree there. But also it seems that kind of that two components, going back to the very first definition, a strong feeling of displeasure or hostility, it seems that there's the feeling component mm-hmm. that's very strong you know disliking kind of, kind of component um that leads to maybe some sort of active hostility yeah that's a key a key point that we want to hold to um and then looking up the hate ones hate is a strong dislike or hostility animosity toward animosity is a bitter deep-seated hatred despise is to regard with contempt or scorn to dislike intensely or loathe Contempt is to consider something inferior or worthless. Scorn is to have contempt or disdain for, to consider beneath you. Loathe is to dislike greatly. Dislike is to regard with distaste, to find something repugnant, to have an aversion, uh, to, to avoid something as unpleasant or painful. To detest is to dislike intently or abhor. And then abhor means to regard with horror or loathing. So... Those those were the, the you know the the family the the wording the um, the Hebrew and the Greek right the definitions mm-hmm. so one of the things that that as we were putting all this study together um, we were I was trying to nail down what's the difference between hate and anger and this actually does become important um, if 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 you're if you're pushing back on this whole idea that that Christians can't be angry um, 
this, this will be helpful. Mm-hmm. And it's so I, I can't nail this down. I couldn't nail it down scripturally. I couldn't nail it down uh, um, philosophically or from the dictionaries, etc. But but what the, my takeaway, what I was getting was, so what's the, because they both are really strong feelings mm-hmm. uh, of not liking something. And so there's some overlap there. Mm-hmm. It seems that the, the, the two things that really jumped out at me was anger being that active hostility toward and then hate being defined something utterly repugnant and having aversion to, so you kind of step away from. So my theory is that that what so the main difference between the two is anger is an act of hostility towards something, mm-hmm. where hate is actually a strong aversion away from something. Hmm. And so one of the things that uh, we're going to explain it in a little bit when we try to piece all this together is one should always hate sin. One should find it repugnant. One should loathe it because of all the detriment it cause, causes, um, and and have that aversion, like you know, where your step. Ooh, I like, and th- and this is more about you than it mm-hmm. is another person. Mm-hmm. But when you're tempted by some sin and you're recognizing the detriment that it causes, you should have an aversion to it. Right, you should step back, uh, a step back from that, and that's different than the anger. So we'll come back more to that when we kind of unpack it all. But I want to go ahead and kind of throw that seed out there. Mm-hmm. Um, but so, anyways, so what we're seeing is we already were noticing there was some things different that I think a lot yeah. of times I might have used um, anger and hate interchangeably. But then if I thought about it, I saw it as two different things, you know. Um, and so our curiosity was really piqued as we were going into the study of, of what what, is, what does all this mean. Um, so with that, then we went into Scripture. And so one of the things that I did was when I put all the Scripture together— um, is I grouped it into sections, and so I wanted I wanted to find all the passages that talk about God and anger, mm-hmm. and then I wanted to find all the passages that talked about man and anger. So I separated those two categories. Then within the God category, I was paying attention to was there a difference between Old Testament and New? Was there a progressive revelation or change? And we're going to come back to that. Um, but I also was focused on um, splitting into subsections. Is first of because one of the things we found in the study was there was a lot of passages about him being slow to anger. Uh, Exodus thirty four six and Nehemiah nine seventeen, a bunch of them in Psalms, Joel, Jonah, Nahum, mm-hmm. uh, and so he was slow to anger. And so I wanted to figure out what that was. Then, and then talked about, you know, he was slow to anger, and then his anger gets kindled. And so we're going to go into, in, into each of these things. But so I broke it to, why is he slow to anger? What does that mean exactly? Mm-hmm. And then once the anger is kindled, why is the anger kindled? And then what, what happens? Who is it kindled toward? For what purpose is it supposed to achieve, right? All these sub-questions under there. Then I found passages on God withholding or stopping or turning from his anger. And so what causes him first to be slow to anger, then what causes him to kin- has, have his anger kindled, and then what causes him to turn away from anger. These were all things that I was trying to, to understand. Mm-hmm. Um, and so again, looking at that between Old Testament and New, right? So that, that just kind of gives you a layout of, of the path that we took. Um, so let's, let's discuss some of this. So the first big thing is the slow to anger. And there's two main questions here. The first question is, what does that mean exactly, slow to anger? And mm-hmm. then the second question would be why. But so there's two camps on this, and Zach and I are in the same camp, uh, and we're going to present both to you. And why, and, and why I present both? Because one can make arguments for both. And so, so here's the two camps. The first camp is slow to anger actually means an absence of anger. So w- the phrase is slow to anger also equates to no anger. Mm-hmm. 
And the, the idea behind that is like, for example, if I'm slow to get home while I'm driving, I'm not home yet. Yeah. And I don't get home until I'm home. Mm -hmm. And so if I'm slow to getting home while I'm slow to getting home, I'm not home. So while I'm slow to anger, I'm not angry mm -hmm. and I don't get angry until I get angry. Another way also the, the argument behind this philosophically is with the kindling language. So to kindle a fire means to start a fire. So before a fire is kindled, mm -hmm. there is no fire. The fire doesn't actually occur until it's kindled. Yeah. And so when God says, and then my anger was kindled, it would seem to be, then my anger started. Mm -hmm. So, so with logic like that, and some of the, and some of the verses we were looking at, it seems that slow to anger is the same thing as not angry. Mm -hmm. The other camp would be that when he's slow to anger, what, what that means is, is he's slow to act on his anger. So he actually is angry. Yeah. He's just not acting on it. And then when it says that his anger was kindled, it means then he, then he begins to act on it. Yeah. Um, so I think, scripturally looking at the verses, it's hard to argue one way or the other. It doesn't necessarily clearly state. So it seems more of a philosophical argument. And I think for you and I, Zach, both the philosophical argument seemed to be stronger for the first. And for the second one, it was, well, why, why would you believe that the anger is already there? Because God's always angry at sin. And it goes back to, we're just assuming that from mm -hmm. the get-go. It makes sense. It's what we've always been taught. Yeah. And so one of the things is, if that's true, then yeah, that's true, <laughs> right? If sure. it's true that he's always angry at sin, then the slow to anger must mean that, that he actually is angry. He's just not acting on it. Mm -hmm. But what if that assumption is wrong? Um, and, and go, cause also going back to patience and even love, yeah. it would seem that patience and love entail no anger. Now I know once some, someone wants to say, but God disciplines those he loves. True. That's biblical. But that says he disciplines those he loves. Yeah. It doesn't say he gets angry with those he loves. Now people are going to want, you know, we're, we're going to just, yeah, you there's know, a be, lot be of patient, complexity right, as, as with we kind of go mm -hmm. through all this. But so, so, so that was the first thing is it seems yeah. that slow to anger, um, can be one of those two camps. Zach and I do lean towards the camp of it's actually an absence of anger. Mm -hmm. And then once the anger is kindled, that's actually when the anger comes. Yeah. And I, when you walk through and define the different terms, the way that we've defined them, which is why Shannon, you spent so much time at the beginning walking through what we've been going through to get to where we are right now, mm -hmm. because I completely understand someone that, uh, is listening to this episode because someone said, hey, you should listen to this, see what you think. Um, which, if it was Shannon and I that said that, hey, thanks for actually listening. Right. Um, but if someone said, listen to this, and you are doing that, I understand where pushback would come from that. But when you look at the different attributes of God and the different things that we do clearly see in Scripture about his love and his patience and uh, long-suffering and just these different attributes that if you were to have them with anger, just kind of res like underneath bubbling, not, not acting on it, but it's just kind of bubbling in there the whole time, it seems to lessen some of the other attributes. Mm -hmm. Like if you, um, if I were to do something to you and I were to um, 
do something that frustrates you and you're responding in patience and love, but I know that there's a little undertone of anger with how you're responding to me, that changes a lot of how I interact with you. Mm -hmm. And so the presence of anger, even if it's not being acted on, really does seem to just cause some hesitation right. with what we see. With, it's still there. Yeah. And so yeah. It, it, it just complicates things. And that's one of the reasons, there's many different ones, that just really makes it hard because if I think about a scenario where someone is being patient and loving and also angry, I feel like I can think of a better scenario where that person's not angry. Right. And since God is the greatest thing that we can ever think of, and he's better than what we can even imagine, it really would seem that he would fall into that second yeah. category. And, and, you know, like, like you said, we're challenging a long-held thing. Yeah. Um, but we're finding that, you know, what if... So reading some of these verses, uh, you know, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness, and, mm -hmm. you know, and also, too, his anger is but for a moment. That yeah. was another one. His anger is but for a moment, so it seems that, and it, but his loving kindness endures forever, right? Mm -hmm. So it's also helpful to have a visual here. So we, you know, we're drawing this out, and when we did the study, it's kind of like the like the heart monitor, like the, like the EKG. So you have like that flat line, and then you have that spike. I think the EKG goes up and down. Mm -hmm. For our drawing, we just did up. Um, but the idea was you have this this flat line, and that flat line represents God's patience and him being slow to anger. Then, and it'll be long periods of this flat line, uh, and then there'll be this huge spike of, of anger and, and wrath, mm -hmm. um, usually on the Israelites, <laughs> yeah. um, but, but and sometimes on, on the other nations. Um, but then it would, it would come back down again and go back to the flat line. So one of the things is, I don't, off the top of my head, I want to say out of all these mentions, you know, because there were 745 mentions total, mm -hmm. most of them in the Old Testament, but a lot of those are actually talking about someone, you know, so and so being angry, yeah, uh, or vexed or whatever. They're not all talking about God. If you actually count, uh, actually, we can look at it because um, I have the sheet. the The passages of where it's God's anger is kindled, uh, it looks right around maybe 50 to maybe 70, maybe 70 mentions. And some of those mentions are talking about in uh, maybe 80. Anyways, so 70 to 80 mentions. Some of those are just talking about in general, say the Psalms. Mm -hmm. Others are talking about specific events. And a number of times, it's it's multiple mentions of the same event. Yeah. So it comes out to like 40 or 50, maybe 40 or 50 events um, that we see God getting angry at. Now, I, I realize that's not all the times that he got angry. It was sure. just recorded. But one of the, this is another one of those things that made me rethink all this, is the, the Old Testament lasts for a period of about 4,000 years. And so if, if we were to draw out like that timeline, and it would be these long, you know, because he says he, he's slow to anger, uh, he's long-suffering, mm -hmm. his patience, all these different passages, um, and then his anger's but for a moment. If you were to draw it out, it would be these long flat lines and then these, these quick, very intense, yeah. <laughs> uh, immediate spikes and then back down to the flat line again. And there'd be maybe 40 of them. So one of the things that we had talked about was, let's say, Zach, you know, you and I know each other for the course of our whole lives. And let's say, let's say I die at 90. So you've known me for, you know, 50 years or whatever. Mm. And, and of course, this is not true of me. But let's say <laughs> uh, in the course of the 50 years, you saw me get angry uh, three times in 50 years. 
and, and I passed away, and then someone was asking you to describe me. You're not going to use anger as a description of me. You're not going to say he was an angry man because hmm. you literally saw him get angry three times, or me yeah. get angry three times in 50 years. So one of the interesting things was realizing that we have uh, these 40 instances over 4,000 years. So that's 10 instances every 1,000 years or one instance every 100 years. You know, this is just average. Mm-hmm. Um, God doesn't get angry very often. Yeah, It's not recorded that way. And that, you know, because again, I, I grew up thinking God was angry in the Old Testament, loving in the New, right? Mm-hmm. Oversimplification. And so that was another thing that jumped out in this study, mm-hmm. that, that we, we're drawn to the angry passages. Yeah. The angry passages are preached and taught. Uh, we quote them a lot. And so they're very, very fresh in our mind. And so then it begins to paint this picture that he's very frequently angry mm-hmm. and that he's quick to anger. But if you actually read the text and let the Bible paint the picture it wants to paint, yeah. it actually shows, oh man, he's super slow to anger. Hmm. And it's actually infrequent. And in, in the New Testament, even more so, right? It's, it even more drops off. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so that, that was amazing to us, that, that, he was, that he really is slow to anger, and his anger is but for a moment. Mm-hmm. So that then segued into us. Okay, so so that was like the first thing that 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 I was coming to grips with is that he's actually not angry very often. Now again, if you hold to the camp that the anger's un, is lying underneath, he's just not acting on it. Then it actually shows that he's pretty much always angry. Mm-hmm. And so one of the things that that I had to question was the the idea was that whenever sin occurs, God gets angry at it. Right, that, that this is before the study. Mm-hmm. That that so what triggers God's anger? Sin. The text doesn't actually show that, hmm. because there's sin all throughout the Old Testament, and for huge chunks of time, he's slow to anger. He's not angry. He's patient. Mm-hmm. He's gentle, but then it usually then it re- it reaches some trigger point where the anger then comes in, and so what that was telling me was so. Sin is not an automatic trigger of his anger because sin occurs pretty yeah. much 24-7, and he's angry 24-7. Because if we were to see God be angry every time someone sinned, there would be nothing but anger. anger. I mean, because we sin all the time. Like, even as like as a believer today, I, all the time. I sin Go way back to the more sin study, right? than yeah. I ever want to. And so if... If we if God actually did every time we sinned, He got angry. He would have to be constantly angry because that's unfortunately someone is always sinning at every time. Mm-hmm. Like there's how many billion people in the world? Someone is right. sinning right now. So what's interesting is, and we want to clarify this too. Um, we're not trying to paint this like rosy hippie, yeah, non-angry God, right? Because one of the things is going back to the grieving study. God grieves. Sin, mm-hmm. and so because sin occurs all the time, God is constantly grieving. Mm-hmm. We also know that you know the fruit of the spirit includes love, joy, and peace, and patience. Mm-hmm. So God is always full of love. He's always full of joy. He's always full of peace. We also know that He hates sin. He loathes it. So He always hates sin. Mm-hmm. So in the chart, what we were drawing out was we had a whole bunch of timelines. We did, yeah. and so if like love is this squirrely line or whatever, that squirrely line's always going, Mm -hmm. right? So the heartbeat is always beating, um, beep, 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 beep. So he's always loving, and he's always at peace, and he always has joy. 
And that, that's before creation, during creation, into the eternal kingdom. Mm-hmm. We also know that he grieves sin and he hates it. He loathes the detriment that sin can cause. Yeah. Now, was he grieving and full of hate before creation? No, because there was no sin. Is he going to be grieving and, and full of hate of sin in the eternal kingdom? No, because there's no sin there. So what you have, you can imagine like three stages, kind of pre-creation, this prologue, and then mm-hmm. the eternal kingdom. The love, the joy, the peace, those things, always, all three stages. The grieving and the hatred, always in the middle stage. Mm-hmm. Anger, occasionally in the middle stage. Hmm. This, is, this is the picture that the Bible was painting. Um, and so that was very helpful for us that, yes, he always grieves and hates the sin, but the anger seems to be this occasional thing that got triggered that, that was super intense. So that then led to, so this, that, that was like the first big thing jumping out at us. Mm-hmm. So then that led to, and, and, and I, I'm really convinced of that. Yeah. Um, I've wrestled with it, you know, and, and obviously for the episode, we need to keep, rec- keep moving. Maybe you pause it here, right? And just, just ponder on, on mm-hmm. the significance of that. Um, so then we started looking at, okay, so that, that's the picture there. So now let's look at when his anger is kindled. What can we find there? Like I said, um, it doesn't happen a ton. It's usually pretty short. Um, it was usually against the Israelites, sometimes against other nations and going back to the punishment study. So, so what we found was there's actually a very strong link between patterns between punishment and anger. And so one of the things that, that we started to realize was, Anger seems to be this tool that he that he's using, mm-hmm. this this submission hold, or this knockout punch. Yeah, and so that was that was pretty much what the picture was painting in the Old Testament was that when sin was going on, he did grieve it and he did he did hate the detriment it was causing, still loving the individuals through it all, still full of joy and peace in the midst of all the grieving, right? Um, and just long periods from nine from zero to ninety that you mentioned mm-hmm. of just refraining from that anger. Not using it, not and I, we would argue not even feeling it. Mm-hmm. It's because he is this perfect God, um, and just just that that gentle, firm warning and conviction. And then, so what seemed to trigger was some sort of combination of things. So one factor would maybe be the length of time, and so because 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 what he was, you know, what's the whole point? And this is all goes back to what you mentioned at the beginning uh, with the punishment. What's the whole point of that conviction and warning? Restorative. It's to mm-hmm. bring you back to him, back to good. Um, and so it seemed that either at some length of time of not repenting or potentially the quantity of sin that added up or the type like idolatry seemed to be a big one for him. Mm-hmm. It seems the biggest thing that upsets him is unrepentance. Yeah. Is the big thing. But idolatry would be like a close second, right? Um, but anyways, at some point it got triggered. Um, and so now his anger was kindled. And it's not like I'm gonna I'm gonna, you know, turn the Bunsen burner up just a little. Yeah. It's like for long periods of time, no anger, and now, all right, guys, you weren't yep. listening. Now it's Here it time. Is. Boom. And so he turns up this fierce, wrathful anger. And so what was interesting, by the way, is we weren't trying to downplay the anger of God. Mm-hmm. We were trying to get more accurate. And so that, that's why, again, long periods of time where there is no anger. It's an occasional tool. But then when it does come, there's no downplaying of it. Yeah. It's super, super intense. And so it seems that, so, so, so what triggered it? Some combination, maybe length of time or, or amount, quantity or degree or the certain type, whatever. But it got triggered. Um, and, and, and boom, there it went. And, and what was the point? What was the purpose of it? It seemed pretty much, this was the pattern we saw in, in, the, in, the, in the unpacking. It was one of two reasons. It was either that submission hold 
where he's putting you in that arm bar, mm-hmm. trying to get you to tap immediately and to repent. And so, and we see this with with the, with the Israelites, and that some of that, you know, because he said, now I'm about to bring the sword or the mm-hmm. famine or the pestilence upon you, right? So I'm putting the submission hold on you, and and then usually almost instantly they tapped, yeah, and they repented. And then the anger was gone mm-hmm. because the purpose of the anger was to bring about the repentance. Or there were other times, and this was more on, on the unrepentant nations, um, that it was the knockout punch. Mm-hmm. And so it was that it was that destruction. Uh, and so he wiped out that city or that person or whatever because he knew they weren't going to tap. And so he purged them mm-hmm. and removed them off the board. And again, it was helpful for us seeing the consistency of all these different things, all these different studies, just like um, playing into each other and affirming yeah. each other, you know, et cetera. Uh, anyways, so that that's that's what we learned about the uh, the anger being kindled and, and the purpose of it. And then so then what happens? Well, why would he? Why did he stop it or turn from it? He stopped or turned from it because the person either repented or they were dead now, mm-hmm. right? So all that really just shows you again and again and again, it was painting a slightly different picture of what we thought about God's anger. Does that make sense? Yeah. And I think it's helpful to keep in mind what you were just saying, that this is a tool. It's not an impulsive reaction. And just that whole idea that this is a response that God has. God does at times get angry, but it's not him doing what we do a lot of times and just uh, something happens and then all of a sudden we just snap and we respond in anger. No, this is actually something that he intentionally utilizes in order to bring people back to himself. And that distinction, I think, is just really helpful. And this is, if you've been listening to any of these episodes that we've been doing, I mean, even from some other seasons, but like love and we get into discipline and punishment and all these things, we've been talking about... um, you know, God's point is to get us back. Mm -hmm. And so, for example, before the punishment study, I did not like the language that God would still punish us. But then I realized with the whole wind sprint analogy and all that, if he is doing some sort of punishment, it's not the retributive punishment, it's this restorative punishment. Mm -hmm. Oh, well, that makes more sense. I'm more open to it. And so with the anger, realizing that 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 anger is that tool because he's trying to get us back because we need it, Mm -hmm. right? Uh, We also talked about before the, the episode here, this is spectrum all over again, where most of us have grown up, if we've grown up in the church or, or what we're familiar with is, imagine like, you know, zero to 100 or zeros, there's there's no anger whatsoever. And, and it's like the, the the extreme, like God's like, oh, you go do whatever you want, right? Mm-hmm. Where the, in the 90s and the 100s, it's at the drop of the hat, he just explodes on you. Mm-hmm. I think most of us have pictured God like in the 80s. Mm-hmm. Not quite in the 90s where he just explodes at the drop of the hat, but he is pretty quick to anger, you know, et cetera. And it happens quite a bit. And and so what we're realizing is, I don't, I don't know what number we would, we'd put on it, oh, yeah, but know. it'd be somewhere in the middle. So we're not moving to the far left where we're saying there is no such thing as anger and God never gets angry. Um, it, so maybe 30s, 40s, I don't know. But it, this idea that, that it is pretty infrequent and it's very, very intentional with what he uses on it. Mm-hmm. So so people sometimes, you know, if, you, if, if you've always grown up in the 80s, in, in this number, um, not the 1980s, <laughs> yeah. which I grew up in, in great music. But anyways, <laughs> if, if you're used to thinking of God in that 80s range, so he's mm-hmm. very quick to anger, if anybody says anything other than that, you reject it. Mm-hmm. Right, because you know it's in the '80s, especially when you have people arguing the zeros and tens and twenties or whatever. 
So here we are in this episode bringing you to the 70s, 60s, 50s, maybe right, how, wherever that range would be. We're not going all the way to the left, but yeah. we are bringing you out of that. And so we understand that it's like, oh, no, 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 no. But it's like, but, you know, we, we were the same in the same boat. Um, and it was letting all this, this stuff come out and realizing the picture that was being painted, it changed things. And it actually, once we got there, it made even more sense you know, uh, et cetera. Mm -hmm. Anyways, so that's what we found with the Old Testament. So then the New Testament, and we already mentioned this with the, the frequency, mm -hmm. in the New Testament, it drops off almost completely. And so, so we looked at each of the anger, each of the mentions in the New Testament of anger and wrath, referring to God's anger and wrath, mm -hmm. right? Because other mentions talking about other sure. people. Sure. But with God's anger and wrath, what we found was almost... Uh, I'm trying to think how many there were. If we look back at the at the notes, um, I got to scroll the pages here. There was a total of is, okay. So there's only a total of 86 mentions in total of anger and wrath and that whole family in the New Testament. Mm -hmm. um, so if if we're looking at anger and wrath uh, of God, let me scroll down to that page. Uh, like six, twelve, twenty, like what thirty? Maybe thirty Something mentions. Like that, yeah. So maybe just thirty mentions of God's anger and wrath in the New Testament. Almost all of them are referring to his the end times judgment. Yeah. So depending yeah. on you know whatever your eschatology is and how that plays out, but but with the the um, God's wrath on the rebels at the end and and then judgment day in Gehenna and the lake mm -hmm. of fire. Almost all of those 30 or so mentions is referring to that. Um, none of them refer to God's anger or wrath on believers. Mhm. And only uh, uh, two or three or four seem to be referencing God's anger on non-believers right now, mm -hmm. like or you know during the New Testament or, or times now, kind of yeah. post cross whatever. So we this is when we wrestled with a lot, mm -hmm. um, trying to figure out what what, what, what exactly is going on here. So the, I'll put it in my words, and you can kind of put it in your words. Okay. We think, and like, like I said, when, when it comes to man's anger, we're much more confident on. But with this one, this is one of the things we're still wrestling with. So, so one thing is, is we talked about, like, imagine like, um, punishment and anger being kind of handcuffed together. And so in the old Testament, we see from zero to 90, um, almost with anybody, and you, can, you always find exceptions to the rule with this, yeah. but the general pattern is from zero to 90, whoever the person is, believer or non, God is ridiculously patient with them, long suffering, you know, slow to anger. Mm -hmm. Um, and then from 90 to 91, there's this really intense affliction, the submission hold, etc. And that would be, um, and the affliction itself is the punishment. So he, he's bringing about some painful affliction, some submission hold to get the person to repent. And he tacks onto that, the anger. Mm -hmm. um, and so he's, he's doing this, this action of punishment, displaying this intense emotion of anger. And so it's like a double whammy. Mm -hmm. And that seems to be all through the old Testament for believer and non then post cross, we see this change. You know, just just in the text and the mentions. And when you say believer in the Old Testament, correct me if I'm oh, wrong, but you're follower. mainly talking about like followers or really the nation of Israel. It's they, one well, of the main places that we see a lot of that. Nation of Israel, which started around 1500 BC, so oh, yeah, 1500. That's true. Yeah, so so followers of God okay. or God fearers, you could use that phrase as well. Mm -hmm. So yeah, so that so that's Old Testament. Then post cross. We see a big change, and I think where both of us are at, it would be, so what's the change post-cross? With punishment, no change. 
in the sense of that zero to 90, 91 to 99, um, you know, intense restorative affliction and then the, the 100 purging. It seems that that actually continues for believers and non. And again, we're emphasizing with the non-believers specifically, God never does the retributive punitive punishment on you. It's mm-hmm. the restorative punishment or that purging. And then for non-believers, yeah. it's that plus the retributive element, whether that's in this life or in a, a Gehenna, right? Mm-hmm. However that works. Anyway, so so that would seem, so because and because what's the whole point of all that? The cross doesn't need to change it because, it, well, and you, you would use the term discipline mm-hmm. rather than punishment. Yeah. Um, but he disciplines those he loves. And so he, he might bring about some sort of affliction on you as a restorative thing to bring you back, not as a punitive or retributive thing, harm for harm. Mm-hmm. Uh, but anyway, so that continued. What we did see a difference was in the anger. And so where we said, like in the Old Testament, he would do these acts of this punishment showing this display of anger on top of that, so double whammy. Yeah. It seems that in the New Testament, for believers, for those for followers of Jesus, that restorative punishment thing will still continue, but no more anger. So he doesn't. He so he actually refrains from any anger. He doesn't have that anger. Um, we can we can talk about the, you know the verses that on the cross took away that wrath or whatever. Mm-hmm. And so it seems that that from the post cross on, he may still use that discipline, but the di- or, and, and the, puni- the the restorative punishment. But it's done without any anger. Yeah, it's just more of this calm. I have to do this almost like reluctantly, but I have to do it because it's necessary. And then for non-believers, the whole punishment system, restorative, et cetera, we just, we've all been describing already, still continues. And it seems that there is some, some display of anger still that goes on with that. Mm-hmm. Um, now, we discussed this. We don't know for sure. Is the dial turned down? Um, one can make the argument of that based on just the sheer drop-off of mentions in the text. Yeah. Um, and so it may, it may be that the dial is still up. And so mm-hmm. in today's time, when God is, is working with a non-believer with some sort of restorative punishment, uh, or maybe with the purging, that his anger and wrath are still full on. Mm-hmm. It may be that they've dialed back a bit. It may be that they've dialed back a whole lot. Yeah. Um, I, I don't know where to go with that. So we're going to leave you, the listener, to, to kind of to wrestle with that. But but that's how I would explain God's anger post-cross. Yeah, and I would echo m- most all of what you said. Um, one thing that complicates uh, the number of times we see anger in the New Testament is the fact that the New Testament was written over 40 to 60 years and the Old Testament was right. written over thousands of years. And so it makes sense that the disciples, as they were writing the New Testament books, they didn't necessarily see a whole bunch of anger because they were only writing about 40 years of history. Mm-hmm. And so if... So percentage-wise... And so percentage-wise, there's not very many mentions of anger in the New Testament but it was a much smaller period of time. So that can mean one of two things. That can mean that it really is, this is just the beginning of something new with the cross, that there is just much less anger, or that just in that particular section, um, maybe believers were doing the things they were supposed to be doing with love and these different components, and so it just wasn't present. I would lean more towards the first one, but I do want to acknowledge that's a level of complexity with this discussion. Yep. Um, that yep. with right. the New Testament, we don't see... A lot of passages talking about God's anger. Um, we see none towards believers. We see only a handful, handful towards non-believers and evildoers. For it, yeah, uh, and evildoers is a lot of times what the text actually says in reference to them. Um, and so, 
do want to mention that, but I really would echo much of what you're saying, that it really does seem that in the Old Testament, we see punishment coupled with anger. Mm -hmm. But then in the New Testament, because of the cross, it really does seem that anger doesn't have to be a tool that God uses, Mm -hmm. although he does still restoratively bring about affliction, which we would define as punishment, in order to bring people back to himself. And this is conjecture, but we may argue that because as a believer you have the Holy Spirit now residing within you, um, that punishment level is enough. You don't need to do the double whammy of the punishment and the um, anger. And the anger. And of course, application-wise, uh, repent <laughs> yeah. quicker, mm-hmm. um, so that you don't, you don't because because he, he doesn't rush to the punishment thing. Um, so repent before that, and then you can avoid it. Yeah, because um, with the affliction that punishment is. In the New Testament, what we see is we see that pretty much divorced from the idea of anger, which still makes sense. Um, it's not wrong for God in the Old Testament. We will make sure that we're not saying that we're not communicating this. It's not wrong in the Old Testament that anger was coupled with punishment right. when God's doing it. Right. That's not a problem um, because he's able to see the full picture of what's going on, complete knowledge. Um, and it's also not inconsistent because remember we right. define consistent as always being right, right. not being oh. the same. Yeah. And so this isn't yeah. a consistency issue. This is just um, an issue of what did the cross accomplish, which is a very long discussion. Um, and then how does that look? How does that affect how anger interacts with punishment in the New Testament yep. and then specifically for believers? So the main takeaway here with the God stuff is one that his anger doesn't happen nearly as much as you think it does. Yeah. Uh, and two, it's way less just un- uncontrolled, intemperate, reactionary feeling mm-hmm. and much more a very intentional uh, decision to be triggered as yeah. a tool. Yeah. A very, very powerful, powerful tool. Um, and so, so God's anger is a thing. But it's much less frequent than, than we think, right? And, and for very specific purposes. Yeah. And one other thing, because with the idea that after the cross, um, God still uses anger with unbelievers, you can make the case that since anger is um, a strong affliction or strong emotion coupled with strong affliction for the purpose of bringing people to God, that anger and that bringing people to God is needed for the non-believers because they haven't entered into a relationship with him yet. Right. That's what we just said about the Holy Spirit. Yeah. Yep. Once you're in a relationship with him, he doesn't have to bring you to a relationship with himself. Right. He just needs you to come back into fellowship with him. Right. And so anger isn't needed for that part of right. it. It's makes just sense. some sort of discipline or punishment. Yeah. As a conjecture, but it makes sense. Mm-hmm. So. Um, and so then one more thing with, with the God stuff is the incarnation. So looking specifically at Jesus Mm -hmm. and his anger. And this was really interesting. Um, How many times in the four Gospels does the text specifically mention Jesus being angry? So you're looking at Mm -hmm. 28 chapters. I forget how many chapters are in Mark, 12 or 15, 20-something in Luke, and then 21 or 22 in John. So it's 60, maybe 80 chapters, right? Somewhere in there. Um, how many times does it does the text flat out state Jesus was angry? What would you guess? Again, I know you know the answer um, already, but imagine. Well, from the people that I've talked to, there is at least one main event 
that everyone seems to point to. Right, and we'll so come I back to that in a second. I know there's at least one, um, probably, again, not very often. He wasn't alive in the grand scheme of things that long, so probably half a dozen again. Yeah, one. There's only one verse in the four Gospels that flat out states that Jesus was angry. Um, and it's when it was on a Sabbath, and he was getting ready to heal somebody, and so that they were like, hey, you can't heal on the Sabbath, you can't do that work, etc. And it says that Jesus was angry with them, and he grieved hmm. like their stubbornness, and then he went and healed, right, because he was trying to make a point. So the only actual textual exclamation of Jesus being angry was once, and it was coupled with grieving and even hmm. like compassion. Um, that's the only mention. Then there's another one that, it's it could be read this way and this is when the disciples were kind of arguing over who could sit at his right hand and it says that he became indignant but we we looked it up in the greek and and the word means to be um like severely afflicted and so the idea there is he was indignant it really bothered him Mm -hmm. that he that they were asking that but it wasn't necessarily that he was angry yeah. It was just that he was bothered. So you have so you have, you have one passage of him being indignant. And again, I'm talking about flat out stating in the text. Mm-hmm. So so not implied. It's it's there. It's explicit. One time of him being bothered. One time of him being angry. That's it. Hmm. So then you get to what about all the times it's implied? So for example, a lot of times when he's dealing with the Pharisees. And he's like, you know, you brood of vipers, uh, you hypocrites. Mm-hmm. Someone had mentioned something about Herod, and he says, you tell that that fox. And that was not, that was not a compliment, right? <laughs> um, so there's a number of times that I am not saying he was not angry. Mm-hmm. Okay, I'm not saying that. One could argue that, that it's implied in the text by the language that he's using. I do want to say, all I want people, you know, I, I don't want people coming out of this saying, Shannon, Shannon is teaching that Jesus only got angry one time. Not, I'm not teaching that. What I'm stating is there's only one explicit passage that states unequivocally that he got angry. There's a number of other passages where it's strongly implied. I just want people yeah. to admit. That, no, 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 clearly. And we always want to be mm-hmm. careful with the language of clear. Clearly the Bible states this. Be really, really careful with that. I yeah. just want us to be honest. And it seems that the honest answer is, okay, the text doesn't state that. It seems to be strongly implied. And as long as someone is willing to admit that, then great. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because I I really do think that recognizing um, basically what you just said summed up what I was going to say. But just the idea that a lot of times when you talk to people, they say, no, he was. And they um, think of different passages, but the passages that they think of don't actually have an explicit mention of him being angry. Yeah, that's there's not, really, there's not a sometimes the emotions mentioned. Yeah, and that's really read into the text, and it's important. We're not saying that it's not that that's not a correct interpretation. Reading. What we are saying is we need to recognize that that is something that we are inferring into the text. So think about that. That right there, we are we are reading anger into the text, or we are inferring anger in that situation. It may be right to do that. Mm-hmm. We just want to acknowledge that it's an inferring it. Yeah. yeah. We just want to put pump the brakes a little bit here because it's 
pretty easy. And it's a lot of times what we're trying to do is we're trying to justify our own actions because we want to be like Jesus. And so we want to make right, sure he's that we quick to do we can be quick whatever he does. Um, and so, look, Jesus is doing it in all of these different situations. So then I can. Mm-hmm. And we just want to pull back easy, easy. Uh, recognize that it's not actually as frequent, especially explicitly, than you would probably think it yep. is. So that leads to the one scene that everybody mentions. Mm-hmm. What is it? It is uh, the flipping of the tables in the temple. Yep, the clearing of the temple. So all four Gospels mention this. Now there's different debate. It might have happened because they each mention it once. And so it might have happened one time. Mm-hmm. It might have happened on two occasions because Mark, Matthew, Mark, and Luke mention it at the end and John mentions it at the beginning. So if John's going chronological, it might have happened at the beginning and at the end. So we don't know. So it yeah. either happened once or twice. So all four Gospels mention it. Most of them, it's just a sentence or two. Uh, I forget which one of the things is Luke, but one of them elaborates a little bit and it actually gives maybe four or five verses instead of just two verses. Mm-hmm. Um, in none of those four accounts, so orges is the main Greek word for anger, thumos is the word for uh, wrath. In none of those four passages do orge or thumos or any other Greek word that means anger used. So none of the four passages explicitly state that God was angry, or that Jesus was angry when mm-hmm. he did it. The one longer passage does mention an emotion. What was it? Zeal. Zeal. Because mm-hmm. it says the disciples saw this and they remembered it as an Old Testament quote, zeal for his father's house shall consume him. So one of the things, and people, they push back on it, they don't like it, um, but one of the things they say is all we know with explicitly, with 100% certainty, is that he cleared the temple in zeal. Mm-hmm. Maybe anger, maybe not. So maybe, maybe it was in zeal and anger, maybe it was in zeal. And I, I fully get the argument. Well, Shannon, look at it. He's, he's knocking tables over. Yeah. The language Making that he was using, he was using, using a whip. Mm-hmm. Clearly that was anger, right? And I'm like, maybe. Like mm-hmm. a strongly implied, yes. But I started thinking about like, imagine, uh, let's say you're, I'm a director and I'm filming this scene. And so the actor that's playing Jesus. And imagine, I say, hey, we're going to film it two different ways. This, this first one we're going to do, um, we're going to have you do it in, um, in zeal. So this, this strong, but no anger, okay? So, so, so you, you, the actor, prep whatever you need to prep. There's no anger in your countenance. There's no anger in your blood. There's no anger in your actions. It's just this zeal and passion that you're flipping all this stuff over and saying those lines. Then we're going to do a second recording where we're going to have you do it in, in wrath and anger. Uh, and we'll record it that way. It seems to me you could actually film both those scenes and the same action is occurring and the same lines, the same vocabulary, the same words are occurring. But, but if, if we were to actually show those two scenes to, the, to an audience, they could actually pick up a little bit of difference between the two. So that tells me that it is possible. It's really hard for us to picture it mm-hmm. with being just in zeal, but it is possible. And so, so that's one of the things where when, when I picture that scene, I definitely picture him doing it with zeal and passion because mm-hmm. the, the text, yeah. you know, well, and actually, they're being told, you know, the text doesn't explicitly state 
that he did it in zeal. It, says, it explicitly states that they remembered the verse that Father, you know, zeal will, will consume him. So it's a implicit, but it's a super short implicit. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, but anyways, so so I picture him doing it in zeal mm-hmm. first and foremost, more than anything. With maybe anger, maybe not. But what's interesting is whether the anger, this is key, whether the anger is there or not, the event still occurs, the message is still delivered, the purpose is still achieved. Hmm. Uh, And so that's just really interesting to me. Um, But also, if it is anger, because again, one one could argue it's strongly implied, and I'm not not going to push back on that. If someone says, well, no, clearly, I have zero doubt, 100%, absolutely, it's fact, I will push back on yeah. that, right? Um, but if someone's like, nah, it's strongly implied, right? Mm-hmm. Okay, great, fine. But also have to keep in mind, this is God in human form yeah. doing this. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's also telling, by the way, because one, one of the things I would say is, it, don't you find it interesting that in all four Gospels, there's only one explicit mention of Jesus being angry, one him being uh, indignant or upset to some extent, and then, and then a number of implied. Mm-hmm. Um that's interesting to me. Yeah. Um, that, 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 that's it. But anyways, so, so, so we, we throw that out there. So that was, that was um, God and anger, right? So then in the study, we moved to, okay, now, given all of that, 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 that this anger is this super intense but infrequent tool that God uses when necessary, and it seems more so pre-cross than post-cross, mm-hmm. um, coupled with the punishment and everything. Given all that, now let's look at man's anger. And so this gets back to all those 16 passages that we, that we saw that I mentioned at the beginning of, mm-hmm. of this, of this uh, episode. And so it was, it was you know, uh, anger resides in the bosom of fools. Uh, man's anger cannot accomplish God's uh, righteousness. Rid yourself of all anger. Rid yourself of all anger. Uh, what was the ones that, that you had that you, that you liked? John? Uh, don't be eager in your heart to be angry. Uh, cease from all anger and forsake wrath. Don't fret because it leads to evil doing. And so, and again, like we said at the beginning, there's no reference to some distinction between righteous anger and and human anger. It's just in all those passages, it's just talking about anger. Because even like in Ephesians, it's rid yourself of all anger. And in Galatians five, the works of the flesh are evident. Lists a whole bunch of things, including outbursts of anger. Yep. And by the way, in the the that's NIV, the word for outburst is not in the Greek. Hmm. So if you're reading the Greek list, it just says orge, hmm. anger. So that's one of the things too is someone. If you look at most of the other um, acts of the flesh, so immorality, drunkenness. Uh, you know, impurity, all yeah. those. If you're asking someone, so so should we do that? No. Should we stay away from it? Yeah. Yeah. So the same for anger. No, no, anger is the one exception in that list. Mm-hmm. No. <laughs> it's not an exception in the list. Yeah. It's there. It's coupled with all these other things. Think about that too. With all, most of, almost all the other in that list, nobody would push back on it. Every, you know, no Christian, right? Every Christian would say, yeah, biblically, yeah. we need to avoid that. Anger is the exception. You, you you don't have a strong argument for that. And because I'm looking at the list, it's immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, anger. And it's right in the middle of the list. Disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, 
drunkenness, carousing, and things like these. Right, yeah, yeah, then he just kind of groups <laughs> it all. Um, he also has later at the end of chapter at the end of chapter five or in chapter six, he says, and so now also let us not provoke one another. Mm-hmm. And he kind of adds another element to that. Um, but anyways, so so we had all of these passages that flat out stated, don't get angry. Don't mm-hmm. use anger, right? It's it's not good for you. It's going to cause problems. Then there were a ton. So, so then we went, we went through all the passages that were descriptive, because those are prescriptive, mm-hmm. right? Prescriptive passages to stay away from anger. Um, then we found a whole bunch of descriptive passages, which was just stories, third-person stories of so-and-so getting angry, and it never goes well, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Yeah. Uh, it's just always problems that are, that are caused from that. So overall, the whole picture was being painted of this X concept, anger, not a good thing. Mm-hmm. Or, again, but given the God context, anger itself is not a bad thing, but man's use of anger mm-hmm. is, a, is not a good thing. Only, you know, God's use of anger is a good thing. Man's use of anger is not a good thing. Yeah, and you've described this before, like chainsaw or um, <laughs> anger being a tool, and it's like a chainsaw. Yes. And so it's something that um, is super powerful. Like imagine a giant chainsaw um, that it's something that is a tool. It is something that can be used and God does pick it up and use it and it's destruct. It's well, not necessarily always destructive, but it's intense and powerful and all these different things. And just, I mean, if it's carving wood, right? It's, yeah. Like yeah. it can still accomplish good things. Like it isn't just an instrument of evil. Uh, it's a tool. Right. And we're five years old. Yeah. And if, we, as a five-year-old kid, walk up to it, somehow manage to get it turned on, which apparently it's actually just a little switch that you flip, really easy. We're going to hurt ourselves, mm-hmm. and we're going to hurt others, mm-hmm. and it never goes well when we, and, when we and try. And whatever we we're trying to carve, we're probably going to butcher it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it's just, it's something, it's too powerful for us to actually put our hands on and so what scripture says is it knows that it knows that it is a super powerful tool that god can use effectively and jesus did use while he was on earth at least once probably a couple more times with the implications Mm -hmm. and so uh jesus in his divinity did pick up the chainsaw but it's something that us and our humanity can't do can't do and so some someone listening may say ah but shan you guys mentioned it was a five-year-old an adult who's went through training, can use it. Problem is, we don't have any passages in Scripture that say, now, as, as a follower, don't, you know, so rid yourself of all anger mm-hmm. until you get trained and mature on it, yeah. then use it. Didn't find any of them. So, so that goes to, you know, we looked at, here's the passages that warn against it. Mm-hmm. Here's pre- prescriptive. Here's a bunch of descriptive passages that just confirm that. Mm-hmm. But, we don't want to do confirmation bias. So let's look up all the verses that would seem to say you are supposed to use it. Just make sure you train and mature on it. And we didn't find any. And we're going to, I know there's one that if you're listening, we already know the one that you're going to bring up. We're going to bring up shortly. Um, so I'm scrolling through the documents here. Um, Cause I put the cat with the man's anger. I put the categories. Uh, let's see. Yeah, so, so what cautions are there against concerning human anger? A ton. And then uh, I, we looked at what did man's anger normally look like and what can we learn from this? And that was that man's anger causes all kinds of trouble. Mm-hmm. Um, and for yourselves was, and others. For yourselves and others. Uh, and this is both in Old and New Testament. 
Um, and so then we looked up verses that, that but let's, let's argue, let's play devil's advocate here, mm-hmm. and let's argue the point of, are there any verses that would seem to say it's a good thing? So, so first in the Old Testament, is anger a good thing at times? What might good, and so, you know, again, if you hold to this dichotomy of there's bad anger and good anger, and yeah, of course, Shannon, don't ever do the bad anger, but you should be doing the good anger. Um, we, I made a list here that looks like there's five, ten, about 20 verses in the Old Testament um, that we put down as potential arguments for man getting angry. And so we asked some of the questions here um, that, that these are passages that might be argued it's a good and noble thing that the individual got angry, um, usually towards some sort of sin or wickedness. So they were responding to some sin or wickedness and anger. And so we, we looked at some questions. Was it right that they got angry? If anger in certain situations is allowed, are there qualifications for it? Um, and was there a better, higher way they could have handled it? This, that's the key right there. Mm-hmm. Um, and do you see any patterns that emerge from this collection of passages? So in the 20 or so Old Testament passages, where it's, it seems to be like somebody who's like trying to serve God responds to some sin or wickedness or dishonoring of God in mm-hmm. anger, um, and, and, and so, so that, but it's a descriptive passage. None of them really say, ooh, this is what you should be doing. This was beneficial that they responded in anger. Hmm. A lot of the passages, whoever's writing it, is they're just recording it neutrally. And they're not saying whether it was a good thing or a bad thing. Um, and yes, it did accomplish some things. Mm-hmm. One of the things that we're going to talk about here is we were repeated a couple of times. It seems that anger can stop a sin in the moment, but love is what transforms the wrongdoer. Mm-hmm. And so I think in these 20 or so descriptive passages where it's just kind of written neutrally, didn't say whether it was good or bad, and you see some good results, um, there could be better results if anger wasn't used. Hmm. And so those, because they're descriptive passages that are written kind of neutrally with, there's some, you know, nuance to it all. They're not, there's none of them are strong arguments for good anger. It's just descriptive passages that some good was accomplished in the anger, Mm -hmm. but not the full good that could have been. Yeah. Cause I even just as a quick example of that, uh, I've, been driving a school bus here in town and i think about like if the kids were acting up if i were to pull the bus over pull the parking brake because i'm going to be safe about this but i were to get up and go to the back yell at the student and slap them they would probably stop whatever it is that they were doing right but that wouldn't change anything about the scenario and it wouldn't long term fix anything it would actually cause a lot more problems because i would, would no longer your have relationship a job with it. well yeah, that's <laughs> yeah. True, yeah but like i want to have a job more importantly the relationship with them i actually have lost credibility to go and talk to them again yep. because if that's how i responded that time then they're not going to trust whatever i say to them in the future but if instead i were to say hey that thing that you're doing we actually need to not do that and here's why when you are sitting in the middle, when you're standing and walking around on the back of the bus, what you're actually doing is you're distracting me while I'm driving. You are making it able. So if I have to stop quickly or if someone were to hit us, you're actually going to get more hurt than someone that's sitting down in their seat. And so it actually is going to cause detriment to you if you keep doing this. Mm-hmm. And so I actually really do need you while the bus is moving to sit down. 
if I go through and explain all of that, the reasoning behind and do so out of love and care for that student, they are going to be much more inclined to say, okay, I'll sit down yeah. than if I were to go up and just hit them. Yeah, because the doing it in a calm, but let's say firm manner mm-hmm. is going to be more effective than doing it in an angry manner. Mm-hmm. It's just the anger is easier, right? Yeah, and it's a faster turnaround. Yeah. So, so we also, so those were the 20 or so from the Old Testament. And then we looked up the New Testament and said, well, okay, so we have any passages in the New Testament that would seem to say we should be using this righteous anger? Any, any, um, uh, um, the prescript, right? Mm-hmm. So there was even less. Um, there were a couple descriptive ones where um, the 10 became indignant with the two brothers. Um, that, that was mentioned twice. Um, ah, I'm, I'll come back to that one. But anyways, most of them were just descriptive that weren't saying one way or the other. Mm-hmm. We found uh, one, two. We found two verses that one could argue for like this righteous anger or this good kind of anger. One of them is in Acts seventeen sixteen, and it says, Now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was being provoked within him, and he was observing the city full of idols. And then it goes on to him preaching up a storm. Mm-hmm. Right. So now this is descriptive, not prescriptive. But what we see is, is that being provoked is the idea of getting angry. Mm-hmm. So Paul was, was seeing all these idols around him and it was making him angry and it led him to go preach these great messages. So this is a descriptive passage of how good can be achieved because anger drove it. Mm-hmm. It's not a prescriptive passage to go get angry. Yeah. Right. Um, and, and so, so that's, it's descriptive at best. And then you have the big one. So we, we talked about um, when, when, we, when I first, and you've done this too, and I've, I've done well, you first present to somebody this idea that anger, that for the mature believer, anger will have no role in their life. Mm-hmm. That it's not, there's no righteous anger. Um, they, they, get, they rid themselves of all anger. That we all, there's always two verses, two passages that everybody brings up. One is Jesus and the clearing of the temple, which yep. we, we just talked about. One, it may not have been in anger, mm-hmm. maybe, but definitely zeal. And two, that was Jesus, that was God in human form, anyways. Yeah. So you can't make the argument for us. Um, and then two is this one, Ephesians 4. Mm-hmm. So Ephesians 4, um, Paul is talking and he's quoting the Old Testament and he says, Be angry and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger, anger, and then do not uh, and do not give the devil an opportunity or, or a foothold. So I had people say, Shannon, right there, clear as day, be angry, mm-hmm. and, and just don't sin. Yeah. So it's telling you that anger itself mm-hmm. is not a sin; that you mm-hmm. can get angry. Just make sure that in your anger you don't sin. And I was like, okay, you know what? I, I yeah, I hear you. Yeah. And I understand that. I want to explore this verse some more. I want to, it's a quote from the Old Testament. Let me go look that up. Let me see what the Greek is, et cetera. Because everything else, you had all this, it resides in the bosom of fools and it only leads to evil and it cannot accomplish God's righteousness and you're supposed to rid yourself of it. Because in fact, that's in Ephesians 4.26. In Ephesians 4.31, so five verses later, is the rid yourself of all anger. And you still have the second half of the verse that says, don't let the sun go down on your anger because you'll give Satan a foothold. So you have this passage, you have this one little phrase, be angry and sin not, or be angry yet do not sin. But it's qualified immediately in the same verse, Mm -hmm. don't let the sun go down on it, because it's going to give the enemy a foothold. And then five verses later, it says, in fact, rid yourself of it all. So so that right there tells me, well, hold on, this is not a clear-cut passage. 
Yeah, because in the same sentence, it says, uh, which I'm not sure exactly where the period is, but even in the original languages, there weren't punctuation marks. Right. So really, for all intents and purposes, in the same sentence, it gives a qualification, but then also in the same paragraph, it gives another qualification. And the other, that, and that, and that the qualification is actually, yeah, the opposite, get rid yeah. of it, right? So so that tells you, right, right? because again, all these passages, yeah. this is not a good thing, and then here's one passage that seems to say it. Well, it's not saying it's a good thing. No. Um, but the, this is the argument. Hey, I, I'm mm-hmm. supposed to go be angry. Yeah. So two big things to know about this passage. The first one is the. So he's quoting, you know, Old Testament, and he's quoting uh, Psalm four four. So I went back and I looked at Psalm four four, um, and in Psalm four four it states, "Tremble and sin not." And I looked up the Hebrew, and so the Hebrew word for tremble means to shake. In most uses of that word, it's talking about shaking in fear. It could mean shaking in anger. but the, So the hyperliteral rendering of, of Psalm 4-4 is tremble and sin not. So Solomon said, well, Shannon, it, he, it's saying like tremble in anger, right? So be angry and sin not. The problem is when you're reading that all of Psalm 4, it's talking about like the glory of God and, and just like humbling yourself before him, etc. It has nothing to do with anger whatsoever. Hmm. Um, it's more the trembling in fear. It's a fear of God. And so it's tremble in fear. Have a fear of the Lord and sin not. It's saying that if you have this fear of God, that fear of God will keep you from sinning. Hmm. That's what Psalm 4.4 4 is, is stating. So when, the, you know, of course, Psalm was written in Hebrews, uh, in Hebrew. In, oh, I forget when this was, well, the 100, first or second century BC, the Septuagint was written. Mm-hmm. And the Septuagint is the Greek version of the Old Testament. The yeah, Greek translation. The Greek translation of the Old Testament. And what happened was, by that point in the first and second century BC, most Jews had, had stopped speaking Hebrew. They spoke Aramaic or Greek. Greek was the kind of the merchant modern common language at the mm-hmm. time. And so it was decided, hey, we want them to learn Hebrew to read the Tanakh. They're not going to do that. So let's go ahead and translate the Tanakh into Greek. Um, and then, and then, then they'll, they'll be more likely to read it. It's a good thing. Yeah. And now a lot of interesting things around the, the Septuagint. And so like if in your Bibles, you'll see in the footnote, it's the, the LXX, which is 70. And so there's talk, it was maybe 70 people that, that wrote it, maybe 72. Things don't always line up when you get into the history of what exactly happened with that Septuagint. Mm-hmm. There's stories that each of the 70 um, wrote independently, and then when they came back um, and compared, all of them agreed letter for letter, and that's a myth that, that, did, that did not happen. <laughs> um, and so one of the things is we, we can't necessarily say the translation of the Septuagint is inspired like the actual original documents. There would be different camps on that. I think maybe some people would hold the Septuagint as inspired. Yeah. Different camps on that. Um, now, Jesus does quote from the Septuagint, um, and so that shows that he he trusted in it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, side note, by the way, the Septuagint does include the Apocrypha, hmm. um, the Mac, first and second Maccabees and all those. The Septuagint actually includes that. Um, so there's, there's a ton of interesting yeah. things with Septuagint. Anyways, so Paul... When he writes the letter to, to Ephesus, and there in Ephesians 4, he's quoting from the Septuagint, okay? So the Septuagint, when they got to Psalm 4.4 that says, tremble and sin not, and it seems to be tremble and fear and sin not, mm-hmm. they went ahead and put the word for anger because the, the tremble could mean tremble and fear or tremble and anger, and it seems context was tremble and fear. But for whatever reason, 
they chose to put the word for anger in the Greek. And so they put in, and so they, so the Septuagint, the Greek version of Psalm 4, 4 says, um, be angry and sin not. Mm-hmm. So, so the Hebrew version of Psalm 4, 4 says, tremble and, and sin not. The Greek version says, be angry and sin not. Probably not what the context was saying. Now, hear me out, because I know people are freaking out right now. Um, Paul quotes the Septuagint. I am not saying that Paul quoted wrongly. I'm not saying that there's an error in the text. I believe that, that when Paul wrote the letter to Ephesus there in Ephesians, it was inspired. And so that's what the Holy Spirit wanted in there. Okay, mm-hmm. so I'm definitely clarifying yeah. that. Um, so why? I don't know, right? We're still trying to figure this out. But Paul then says, so Paul quotes Septuagint, and it's, it's the um, be angry and sin not. All that tells me is we need to be very careful when we're trying to interpret what this passage means mm-hmm. because it's already kind of a weird quote from the Old Testament. And it's interesting because it's not just right here in this specific passage that there's weird quotes from the Old Testament. Right, it happens elsewhere. Yeah, there's there's just a lot of when you actually start looking at all of the Old Te- or New Testament uses of the Old Testament, it's just very interesting to see how the authors t- Yeah, and that's a can of worms yeah, we won't get into. We're not yeah. going to get into that, but I do just want to say that to um, if you are very concerned about what Shannon's saying there, just know that it it's not just this passage. It's just something that scholars have tried to figure out for a little while. And yep. That's so, so, so if, if you hold to Ephesians four says, be angry and sin not, that's all I need to know. I can get angry. There's three things I want you to keep in mind. Point one is this one, that it's a quote from the old Testament that says tremble apparently in fear and sin not. So it's a sort of a weird quote. Mm-hmm. Point two, I asked a buddy of mine, Kevin, who's Greek, teaches Greek at, at seminary or at, at, at Liberty. And I said, hey, can you look into this, this command? Because the B is a command. It's an, an, an imperative, right, from English, or English classes. Mm-hmm. Anyways, he told me that it's a passive imperative, not, not an active imperative. I'm like, okay, what, I don't, what does that mean? And he said a passive imperative is a command to let something happen to you, and an active imperative is a command to go do something. So it's not an active command to go get angry. Yeah. So, and because you'll hear Christian says, you should go get angry at sin. And they would quote Ephesians 4. It's not, it's not an active imperative. It's a passive imperative. It's like, let this happen to you. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's, that's the second thing. And so I'll get to the third in, in, in a minute here. So, when, so now knowing this, that it's this quote from Psalm 4, 4, it's talking about fear the Lord, helping you not sin. And then Paul, inspired by the Spirit, says, so, you know, um, let yourself get angry, and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. And in fact, rid yourself of all anger. You have to put all that together. And so because that's a passive imperative, and you're taking all this into the context here, what you get, the, the, the way to read that passage is, listen, let yourself get angry. So the goal is never to, the goal is not to never be angry, not possible for a human. Mm-hmm. Um, you are going to get angry. So, so it seems that taking all this into context, what Paul is saying is, listen, let yourself experience anger. Okay, that's going to happen. But as soon as that anger starts to rise up within you, we want you to eliminate it, to rid yourself of it completely, to have nothing to do with it and do it that day. Don't, don't wait. Immediately, as the anger's coming up, 
rid yourself of it. And don't think any thoughts in that anger. Don't take any actions in that anger. Why? Because man's anger cannot accomplish God's righteousness because it's only going to lead to evil. It's, it, 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 it resides, it remains in the bosom of fools. The wise individual is slow to anger, and then when the anger comes, they rid themselves of it. Hmm. And so, so to me, that's how you need to read that passage. So, so this leads to the third point, it really seems that passage is not telling you to go get angry at sin. It's saying, let yourself experience, but just get rid of it right away. And just a quick sub point before you get to the third point. It's worth noting that this is written by Paul. And Paul is also the same person that wrote Galatians. And so he says that the deeds of the flesh are anger. He's also the same person that wrote Ephesians, uh, which that's the same verse in the same context that you've been talking about. And also Colossians, which is put aside all anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. And so when you even look at the context of just Paul's writings, Mm -hmm. he, in other places, has a lot to say about the negative aspects of anger. Yeah, and you got in First Corinthians thirteen that he wrote, you know, love is not irritated, mm-hmm. right? So, and and Paul is that writer. He's also the one mentioned in the Acts verse. Yeah. Okay. So one of the things is we, you know, progressive revelation and, and just the maturing process. Um, it seems that later on, Paul got to the point that we should be getting rid of anger. We should not be using it at all. The verse there in Acts was earlier on. So that's the third point is that one, it's from a weird quote Two, it's a passive imperative, not an active imperative. And then three, you only have two verses in the New Testament, one pre uh, one descriptive of a younger Paul and one prescriptive, but a passive prescription. Mm-hmm. Um, you only have two verses that maybe would justify you having some sort of righteous anger or good anger towards sin. You have these two, again, one, one descriptive and one suspect prescriptive. Mm-hmm. That's all you got. That's yeah. all you got to argue, other than just that logic of Shannon, of course we should be angry. Yeah. But we can't, you can't hold, we're, we're trying to stay true to the text. Apply the details of the Bible to the details of your life. Let the Bible paint the picture it wants to paint. So you have these two questionable verses mm-hmm compared to those 16 that we referenced that are clear prescriptive Mm -hmm. to not do it. And so one of the other principles in theology is, you know, prescriptive will always trump descriptive and clear will always trump questionable. Yeah. So if you have 16 prescriptive passages telling you to not get angry, and then you've only got two passages, one descriptive and one passive, questionable prescriptive that maybe might say, get angry, none yeah. of which ever uses the term righteous anger, you really have your answer. And it's passive, questionable, descriptive, coupled in the same sentence with a clear doing this result gives opportunity for the devil and in the same paragraph a clear prescriptive rid yourself of all anger and then in the other writings of the same person who did also get angry in his in his past um in at least one instance that we have recorded and four other spots in his different writings list anger as an act of the flesh something that he doesn't want to be seeing in the church and other negative things when you put that into just the immediate context of 
the passage that it's in and the other books that Paul has written. And later on that Jesus, there's only one explicit mention of him getting angry Mm -hmm. with some, maybe some applied. And you lay on top of that, that we see God's anger dropping off dramatically Mm -hmm. uh, from Old Testament to New Testament, the frequency of the mentions of the text and all that kind of thing. It really does seem to be that as humans, we need to not be angry right? and not be acting on anger. And that means no righteous anger, no mm-hmm. good anger. We don't have what it takes to do it. Only yeah. God does. So what's interesting is I, I, I have a very good friend of mine, a pastor, and that we, we, we see a lot eye to eye on a lot of things. Other things were definitely compatible in our differences. Mm-hmm. We have a great relationship. I was I was telling him about this uh, a while back, and he he didn't like it. He pushed back on it. He I didn't walk through everything we just did. Now I just kind of did a quick summary of it all. But one of the things was one of the reasons why he was rejecting this this proposal mm-hmm. is he said, "But Shannon, we need to be angry at sin, and it's because it's that righteous anger that's going to drive us one to see sin in our own life, and then two help others cease the sin in their life." And I said, "I understand your point, but but." there's some assumptions being made there. Um, and the main assumption, it, well, two assumptions. One is that anger is the only thing that will drive us. Hmm. And two is that it's the most effective. And neither of those assumptions are actually true. So one of the things I told him was, listen, I think there's, there's three other things, actually four, um, that will drive us. Um, one is love. Mm-hmm. Because love does not rejoice, you know, rejoices in righteousness, not in, in unrighteousness. So if the more I'm loving God and loving myself and loving others, the more that's going to drive me to reduce the sin in my life and in the sin of others. Because let me go back to the love episode. Mm-hmm. If you love somebody, you desire benefit for them, not detriment. And so you're going to encourage them and exhort them and even discipline them if need be um, to, to not, not do the sin. So love will drive me. Yeah. Another one is the grieving. So we already said that God always grieves sin. And so grieving is just that 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 suffering, almost like the, like this, the suffering of just watching detriment occur. And so I must always grieve sin. I must grieve the sin that I cause. I must grieve the sin that others, others do. And, and by the way, what we're talking about is we're grieving the detriment that results. Mm-hmm. And so we look at the detriment that I'm now experiencing because of my sin or, or the detriment that somebody else is experiencing because of sin. And we grieve the fact that they're experiencing that detriment. And since we grieve that fact, we're also going to grieve that the sin itself occurred. Mm-hmm. And that grieving is going to drive us to do something. A third one is hate. So this goes back to we should always, you know, hate what it, Romans says, this is Paul, hate what is evil, cling to what is good. Mm-hmm. And, and what he's talking about is you. Yeah. And, and by the way, the, the, this goes back to hate being that aversion. This was another strong argument for it. Um, the cling to what is good is the Greek word for glue. So it's glue, glue yourself to what is good. And so that hate, if that hate is that aversion, that, that separating yourself or stepping back. And again, it's talking about you. Mm-hmm. So you should be, you should be stepping back from your temptation, stepping back from the sin that, that, that's enticing you, uh, and then gluing yourself to whatever's good and, and beneficial. So we should absolutely hate what is evil. We should hate detriment. So when we see the detriment that is caused because of sin, we should hate, we should loathe, we should detest, we should abhor that detriment is occurring and that Mm -hmm. us or others are experiencing that detriment. We should absolutely detest and hate that. And therefore, we should hate the action itself. We should hate the sin that caused that detriment. And that will drive us. Mm -hmm. 
but that's oh, and then patience actually is the fourth one ironically because patience is a refraining from enforcing what is due and there's a verse in Romans that says it God's patience actually leads you to repentance mm-hmm. so what's interesting is it seems that a combination of love grieving hatred and patience compassion right which, which I guess it's kind of a subcomponent under love but uh, all of those is going to drive somebody to address sin mm-hmm. and to try to cease it in themselves and help others cease it in themselves. Um, and it seems very, very powerful to do that. And for God to then add anger on it, it becomes even more powerful, and especially because of someone's stubbornness. So kind of going back to the God thing, what we see is in the Old Testament, there was that stubbornness because the Spirit wasn't convicting as much. I think the Spirit was still around, mm-hmm. present there, but, but the, you know, different a little bit different yeah, it looks different. anyways so so god was saw the sin and 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 the love and the grief and the hatred and the patience all drove him to do something about it and so he so that's what that's what drove him the anger was like some icing on the cake that he needed to add um because you know got to the submission hold or the or the uh the knockout punch mm-hmm. you know that 99 91 to 100 etc and he needed that but in the in the new testament post cross that actually drops off tremendously and he does and he seems at least for believers he doesn't do that as much maybe even for non-believers right mm-hmm. um but anyways so the idea is is that we humans as, as we're made in the image of god and emulating god we also should let love and grief and hatred uh and patience drive us to address and then we say oh god should we go ahead and tack on some anger on top of this just to really like hammer the point Mm -hmm. home and god says no no no, don't do that um anger's too powerful you don't have the wisdom to do it you don't have the love to do it you don't have the perfection so no keep doing the love Mm -hmm. and the grieving and the hatred and the patience keep doing those things let those things drive you but not the anger so what i told my my pastor friend was I understand your point, but you're assuming that if we don't have anger for sin, we won't do anything about it. Mm-hmm. And and but we have these other four things that can still drive us to do something about it. And it seems that those will be more effective than the anger. Mm-hmm. The anger is just a lot easier to do. And so this comes. Remember this? So the video I just showed you before the recording. So thebibleproject.com does a video on the kingdom of God. Uh, it's a cool little video, and, and and there's a bunch of stuff in that video. But one of the things it was talking about was Jesus came you know, in the gospels to tell people, Hey, there's a kingdom coming. I am the king of that kingdom. Um, this is a little bit of what it's going to look like. This is how you can become a part of it, you know, et cetera. And he's talking about him being sovereign, his father being sovereign, et cetera. And one of the, one of the phrases that the, the Bibleproject.com team mentions frequently is it's an upside down gospel. And, and we see this throughout all of scripture. God likes to flip the script. Mm-hmm. Um, and he presents something that's usually presented this way. And then he flips the script and does the upside down version of that. And we see that all through the gospels, all through the Bible. And so one of the things they said was, um, so people at that time pictured, so if, if, you know, here's the king, king of Israel, and apparently Gentiles can come in too, which is great. But this king, you know, when we think of king, we think of this powerful, strong, dominating king that's going to come in and wipe out all the enemies Mm -hmm. and 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 jesus comes in and says we're the king and we're going to come in we're going to wipe out evil and here's how we're going to do it we're going to love our enemies we're going to do good to them paul reiterates this don't do don't do evil to those who are persecuting you do good to them right be beneficial to them and so in that little cartoon thing i showed you there was like it was like a black backdrop 
And then there was like this big like like warrior in red. He was like the enemy warrior. And then there was this small individual in white. And and the red it was like Goliath and, and David. The red warrior, the evil warrior, was you know three times taller than this little person in the white. And and they were they're you know big thick chest, big sword, and they're getting ready to come down and strike the the poor the, the little person in in white. And the video said, but here's the thing: you're not supposed to respond with this force. You're supposed to respond with humility and love and compassion and care. And so in the video, um, as the as the big war, you know, enemy warriors getting ready to strike, the the little person there is like on their knees next to the, and they're like at, at kind of knee height with the warrior. The warrior had was wounded, had a cut from something. The 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 person in white begins to bandage that hmm. cut. And this is actually the parable of the, of the ferocious lion that has the thorn in its mm-hmm. paw. There's different renderings of this. And then like everyone was scared of that lion because the lion was so violent. And then and then the the squaw, the Indian squaw. The Indian princess came and plucked the, um, the 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 thorn out of the lion's paw, and it became very calm and was very appreciative. Mm-hmm. So, in the same type of way, the 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 person in white starts to bandage this evil warrior's um, uh, leg, and and the evil warrior stopped, kind of mid swing, and looked kind of surprised and confused. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, like his body, like his whole body language, like he kind of relaxed, his shoulders came down, etc. And then slowly, he turned from white to red. Or red to white. Or yeah. from red to white. And and this goes back to the, the phrase I mentioned earlier. It seems that anger may stop a sin in the moment, but it is love that actually transforms the sinner. It is a powerful, powerful image repeated mm-hmm. throughout Scripture that we serve, we live in an upside-down kingdom that doesn't do, you know, we don't wage wars, the world wages war. For our fight is not against struggle, uh, against flesh and blood, but against the principalities and powers of this dark world. It's against the demons, right? Mm-hmm. So all these different passages would talk about this. But the idea is, is that, that yes, we absolutely are to respond. Well, first of all, go ahead and give the exception or the point, the comment that you made as far as if we're supposed, if we're going to love the enemy that's ready to strike us and we're, and we're going to wrap a bandage around them, that doesn't guarantee what? Yeah. So it doesn't guarantee that it's actually going to change them. Right. Um, because that it's, it's just not going to happen. Cause we, we can give time. examples. Someone yeah. trying to be nice and they just got taken advantage of further. Right. Yeah. But that doesn't mean that we should stop just because Preach. we know that or just because we're not sure if the person's actually going to respond well doesn't mean that we shouldn't be loving them. One of my professors, um, he was I think he was telling a story of someone that was in his youth ministry and um, really challenged him because the, he had been encouraging the student to come, to uh, unbelieving student to come to the ministry. And eventually the student just said, would you even want me to come if you didn't want me to like get saved? Like, do you actually love me for me or do you just want me to come so you can check me off your box? Hmm. And just this idea of even if someone's going to reject us, are we still going to put ourselves out there? Yep. And it really is just a powerful picture because that's not what the world does. The world wants return on investment. They want, if they're going to do something nice for you, it's because they're going to get something back. And I get, and that's not by and large everyone that does anything. But right. the general rule is you want a return. If you're going to do something, you want something in return for it. And you know what's interesting? So let's say you decide to take this more gentle, patient, turn the other cheek, uh, doing good to those who persecute you type thing. And you want that return, and the return is for them to stop, and they don't stop. So you don't get that return. You are getting another return 
because you're being obedient to what scripture has to say and you're going to get a return for that. Yeah. And so, and you would rather get that return, the kind of the post judgment day, other side of the gates return for being obedient than for the return in the moment, the physical return, which is upside down from what we would typically think. So I, I have, you know, I have multiple friends of mine that, uh, are, well, I would say that maybe they're eager to get angry though. It's not eager. I'm just fully willing when it's needed. And they love the idea of you using anger, even force, if it means to, to make justice happen, right? And to use that force and that anger against some sort of wrongdoer. And they can give you examples of because it stopped the wrongdoer. Mm-hmm. But this goes back to the, these individuals also equally are passionate about Scripture, and we want to get back to these details, and we're mm-hmm. looking at this picture and this the turn the other cheek and the do good and all these things. It's everywhere, and so if we're being and by the way, this is not you know I'm not some like hippie gentle docile <laughs> person that is so uncomfortable with anger and force, and so I'm arguing against it because I'm not comfortable with it. This is a naturally angry, type A aggressive in your face person arguing against anger. I'm arguing against my own bent. Mm-hmm. Why? Because of the text. Yeah. And and just kind of humbling myself before that. And again, and this was multiple, this was years. I wasn't just persuaded overnight. This was years of reading all these things like, man, man, mm-hmm. man, you know, and just getting so convicted that that that, that picture being painted is to rid yourself of all anger for it only leads to evil. It does not accomplish God's righteousness. It resides in the bosom of fools. Um, rid yourself of that anger. Uh, let yourself be driven by the love and the grief and the hate of the sin uh, and patience at the same time and justice. Mm-hmm. Justice. We can go back to the justice uh, episode and what yeah. we mean by that. Let those things drive you. Um, show grace and mercy in the midst of it all, right? Um, it, 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 I understand it's easier, and it, it, you know, it goes back to some of these, the, the descriptive passages. It's easier, and it works sort of. Hmm. So if it's easier, and it works sort of, and God uses it, I'm good. Hmm. Uh, it is easier, and it works sort of. The more difficult way works better, yeah. And and even though God uses anger, he calls us not to. Because again, righteous anger never actually shows up in scripture. The phrase is never used. Mm-hmm. It was developed whenever it was developed, right? So, anyways, that's that's the proposal. And, and, and so and so if your fear is, oh Shannon, no, 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 no. We need the anger to drive us. Nope. There's other things because because yes, we absolutely should be addressing sin and evil mm-hmm. and trying to stop it. Um, but we don't need the anger. There's other things that will do it. They're more difficult, but they're, they're actually more effective. So if that's your fear and that's the source of your pushback, you can take comfort in knowing, boom, boom, here we go. Yeah. If your pushback is, oh, but Jesus was angry, and Ephesians 4 says, be angry, just don't sin. We, Jesus is Covered. God, yeah. yeah, and Ephesians 4 is a passive thing. So we did that. If your pushback is because I would rather get angry, well, <laughs> you know, there, there's your answer right there, right? Mm-hmm. So anyways, so so that's... That's us trying to put all this together. And uh, one quick thing, because right there we're talking a lot about how anger anger is just easier, but it's not as effective. W- what we're saying there is human anger. We do 
we're not saying that when God uses anger, he's just taking the easy way out, the right. less effective way. When he picks up the chainsaw, he knows what he's doing. Yep, and he knows it's needed. Yeah, and so it's. I, I just want to say, and I'm not sure if that was actually coming across, but I do want to just specifically say that we're not saying that God is taking some easy way out. He's doing something that's less effective. When he utilizes anger, super intense, it accomplishes its purpose, we just can't do it. Yep. And I, I also should clarify because I realize a lot of things. A lot of times we say things. We there's things that are unsaid, and people make assumptions, and and they're like, oh, are you saying this? No, 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 I'm not. Going back to punishment, man, we talked about the punishment is actually a system that still exists. Mm-hmm. And so we talked about now it should be the restorative punishment to try to bring the person back, and only a last <laughs> ditch effort is that purging uh, punishment. Um, and then the retributive punishment is only to God. None of that's changed. So authority figures, whether that's a government or pastor or teacher or parent or boss or, or whatever, authority figure, figures can still use the punishment system. Mm-hmm. Now, it should be done restoratively, yeah. not punitively, and it shouldn't be done with anger. Mm-hmm. And that seems foreign to us. It seems flipped. It is flipped. But that's the pattern. That's the point. It's, yeah, that's the yeah. point. Is is that it seems that it, when we actually dive into all this, there's just another layer, an, a higher level of which we're supposed to achieve. That's really difficult, but really powerful, etc. So, having said all that, some of you are going to remain unconvinced, and I would, you know, encourage you to ask yourself why exactly. In the end, um, am I resisting this um from what we've done in the research i don't know if it can be a textual thing from the, the text of scripture mm-hmm. maybe there's some verses that were missing or maybe we read something wrong but it seems that that, that that's probably not going to be it's probably more of a personal thing some presuppositions the presupposition is of course you're supposed to get angry at justice mm-hmm. but we're willing to question that presupposition based on the text right anyways having said that if you do, if you're still um, say nope, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not buying that. I'm not buying what you're selling. Yeah. So I'm going to, I'm going to personally still use righteous anger to combat sin. If you're doing that, I can't force you right to not not do that. Sure. So I need to meet you where you are. I need to accept you and love you and embrace you, etc. Um, and I know that I can still counsel you, right? I can still offer insights. So, so if you're of that camp and you, and you think that there still is such a thing as righteous anger that we should use to combat evil, what I want to say is this. Galatians 5 um, puts certain rules down about how the mature believer acts. So it talks about, you know, if you walk in step with the Spirit, you won't carry out the desires of the flesh. Um, and instead, you'll have this fruit develop. Also, with that, um, and we're gonna we're gonna get into this one in um, the next is this elephant episode where we're gonna put all of it together. Mm-hmm. Um, we're gonna include a list of like because we've done some research on what does biblical rebuke look like, um, and there's the step by step process that you're supposed to go through. One of the things we found was anger is not in there, <laughs> mm. so you can actually do biblical rebukes without anger, and they're very very effective. But anyways, we, we, we'll cover that later, all these the steps. But what I want to say is if, if you're going to if you're going to use what you think is, is righteous anger to combat sin, the Galatians five, Paul says, listen, make sure that whatever you do, 
you're walking in step with the spirit before you do it. Mm-hmm. Because if you're not walking in step with the spirit, you're, you're going to do it wrongly. If you are walking in step with the spirit, you're going to do it rightly. And because he talks about later in that chapter, he says, and so now that we have life in the spirit, let us be led by the spirit. Mm-hmm. So understand that just because you're a Christian does not mean that you're being led by the spirit. We've said this multiple times in a bunch of episodes, two different things. When you confess Jesus as Lord, Romans 10, 9, believe in Jesus, John three sixteen, the Holy spirit resides within you, right? It's, it's, it's that guarantee, that deposit for eternal life, all that jazz. Um, so you now have life in the spirit. You're now homeward bound because you, you placed your faith in Jesus. Uh, Paul says, but now that you have life in the spirit, let us also be led by the spirit. It's another level. It's another thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's what sanctification and Christian maturity is all about. So anyways, he says, so, so, and so do that because if you're doing it, you won't carry out the desires of the flesh and whatever you're doing is going to be done rightly. And then he says, now here's how you'll know. Just because you say you're being led by the spirit doesn't mean that you are. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, he, and, and, and he doesn't even say how in that passage. He yeah. just says, go do it. Yeah. I'm still wrestling through the practical how of being led in the spirit. I think a lot of it is the prayer. So you can go back to the prayer episode that we did um, and just sitting with God, experiencing him, you know, letting him talk, listen to him, chew on that, talk to him in return. It's a bunch of that. uh, I think is part of it anyways. Anyways. So, so you're going to, so before you use any sort of righteous anger, stop and make sure you're being led by the spirit, not just that you have life in the spirit, but you're being led by the spirit. Mm-hmm. And how will you know? And it lists out the fruit. So what's going to happen is if you're being, so let's say you're about to use some sort of righteous anger to confront some sin and you check yourself first and you get, you, you kind of get in, in step with the spirit. Um, you're going to get drenched in love. And we can go back to the love study that you're going to have this sheer delight, this deep affection, this bond, this kinship with this wrongdoer. And that's of the heart. And you're going to love them of the soul. You're going to be willfully, covenantally, unconditionally committed to them. And you're going to love them of the mind. And so you're going to have this certain internal disposition toward them. You're going to be patient and forgiving of them. You're going to be very understanding that dust people do dust things. Mm-hmm. You are going to rejoice in truth and righteousness, not in unrighteousness. So you, you are going to be driven. You do want them in that love to do right things, not wrong things. Um, and, then, and then you're going to contribute to their well-being in very real and practical ways. So you're going to be drenched in that love. You're also going to be drenched in peace. There's going to be no internal angst going on this goes well so we've done the unpacking on peace we haven't done the episode yet we're recording that in a little bit and, and, and down the road shortly soon yeah um, but anyways but so it's a it's an utter lack of any sort of internal angst and then also so because you have peace within your internal peace then you have relational peace which is there's no um distrust or animosity or anything like that between two people so you're gonna be drenched in love you're going to be drenched in this peace with no internal angst uh, and no, no distrust or animosity towards the individual. You're going to be drenched in joy. And you're going to find out when we air the joy study that it's this, it's this deep contentment that moves into this bounding excitement that results in this active celebration. Joy is intense. Uh, it's like earthquake causing. Um, and, so, and so as you're walking in step with the Spirit, you're going to be drenched in this deep, sincere love for this individual. You're going to be fully and totally at peace. You're going to be bounding in joy and excitement. It says that you're going to be uh, patient. And that patient is a refraining from enforcing what is due sometimes. Go back to the patient study. Willing to endure the bad for some other good. You're also going to be gentle. 
you're also going to be good. You're going to be um, uh, desiring benefit for the other. You're going to be kind. You're going to be useful to them, right? There's a lot, some repetition there. You're going to be temperate. So the NIV says self-controlled. Uh, King James says you're uh, full of temperance. And so be, the spirit is actually going to temper you. What does that mean to be tempered? A little bit restrained. And then all of these things is what makes you faithful because you're leaning on the Holy Spirit and you're now reliable. And now, once you're drenched in all these things, now go use the anger. I'll, I, I will say this. If you do get to the end of all of those things and you do find a way to use anger, I can guarantee it's going to look way different than it would have the way that we like to use anger. Right. So think about that. My argument from that whole exercise is by the time you get drenched in all those things, you're not going to need want uh, or use anger. Yeah. You don't need it. You don't desire it. You find there's other ways you can go about this. But if I'm wrong in that, um, and somehow after all that stuff, you still find this righteous anger. Because again, go back to the definition of anger, some sort of active hostility toward mm-hmm. Um, and maybe it's the wrong doing, right? Not the wrong doer. But anyways, if you find that, you know, hey, Shannon, you were wrong. I walked in step with the spirit. I got drenched with that nine fruit and I still found the use of anger. Just what you said, Zach, that you said, but I will say this, uh, it was way different than I thought. Hmm. That's a powerful either way. Yeah. Right. So either we don't need anger as the mature believer or we can't use it. We're not wise enough to use it. But there's a bunch of other tools at our disposal. Or maybe I'm missing something and righteous anger does exist and can come in, but it will totally look different than the way that it's normally used. Yeah, because something that we said earlier is with the whole five year olds can't use chainsaws is the argument of, well, I'm not a five year old. I'm, I'm I'm mature and I've had training. Well, these are the areas that we've had training in, and that's what maturity looks like, is being drenched in love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and gentleness and goodness and temperance and faithfulness. That's what our mature training looks like. Mm -hmm. And maybe there, I mean, we would both argue that there's not, but maybe there is room for anger in that. And it's just going to be different from what we want it to be. Yep. So either completely different or not at all. Yeah. Either way, most of us need to make a change. Hmm. That's convicting, yeah. So so last thing then, so that's a lot, right? And and, and we kind of want to wrap the study itself up there. Mm -hmm. Um, We always talk about the benefits to any one of these concepts that we're unpacking. And so we can talk about first, what's the benefits of God's anger? Well, that goes back to either the submission hold or the knockout punch. So what does what benefits does God's anger result in? It either brings about that repentance, that tapping in submission, um, or it removes the evil doing or evil doer off the chessboard. Mm-hmm. So that's that's one of the key benefits there. Um, and also, too, I guess probably a preventative, if you know the anger might be coming and you don't want to be on the receiving end of that anger, it causes you to repent earlier. Right. Um, so that, that's the benefits of God's timely, in the moment, intense anger. What's the benefits of the mature person refraining from anger? Well, I mean, it, to me, anger is acid to the soul. Hmm. Um, and so if I'm ridding myself of all anger, I'm ridding myself of that bitterness and that acid. Um, and then that anger is not going on other people. Yeah. Um, and I've got all these other things. And, and, and by the way, too, um, 
I, because again, I'm a naturally angry person. I'm quick to anger. And one of the things that I've learned looking in hindsight at my anger is like drunkenness. So, you know, in my 20s when I was a bartender, I was drunk a bunch. And of course, you see drunkenness everywhere you go. And one of the jokes is, you know, you don't, don't ever have confidence in what you conclude as a drunk. Mm. Um, because you have the distorted thinking, your inhibitions are down, et cetera. So whatever you decide when you're drunk is probably the, wrong, probably the opposite answer is the right answer, right? I realized anger is the same thing for me. Hmm. that anything that I'm thinking or concluding in anger is distorted uh, and I can trust that it's not right. Because hmm. there's things I say in anger, things I think in anger, and, 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 it's, and, I, and then once I calmed down, I realized that was wrong. Yeah. So, so it's pretty, some pretty straightforward benefits right there from that. Yeah, and as I think through different times when I have been angry, um, I think about them. I think about my response. I think about how it affected those around me, the people that I got angry with, the people that saw me get angry. I cannot think of a single time when I have, in hindsight, looked and said, "You know, that was that was a good response. Like that that intent that caused the intended result that I was going for." Um, right. It like as I think through it, either it was a detriment to me it was a detriment to others it was a detriment to the people watching like it human anger doesn't produce the righteousness of god and it really is easy it's much easier to see that looking back than especially in the moment when no i should be angry i should be passionate it's much harder to see it then but taking the step back and looking in the mirror and seeing no, it really didn't work out the way that I thought it was going to, I yep. think can be helpful in moving forward. Yep. So I'm guessing that that's your takeaway. Would you add anything else to that? Um, yeah, that's a part of my takeaway. I think the biggest takeaway is just, um, and I'm probably going to end up saying the same thing again, but just that anger isn't nearly as effective as accomplishing what I think it's going to. Right. And, um, it really like one of the biggest things when you explained and walked me through all this the first time was how clear and explicit scripture actually is Mm -hmm. with saying this isn't a good thing and it's not going to end well for you. Right. For, for you to be using. Right. Um, and I, I've I've thought through it. I've thought of implications, I, how this touches, and we're going to get into some of this next episode. How does this interact with justice and love and all of these different issues? And it really does all cohesively work together that I need to rid myself of all anger. When I do feel that emotion, I need to recognize it and expel it from me mm-hmm. because it's not going to end well for me to bottle it up or it being released on anyone else. And so I think that's probably the biggest takeaway is recognizing that this is probably something that I should have figured out on my own Mm -hmm. just from going through, like, being angry. Um, But even though I am very dense (laughs) and thick-headed, Scripture is so incredibly clear on this issue. It can be very persuasive. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so for me... You know, I realize that that this is controversial and that people are going to uh, push back on it. Um, I, like I said, I think this is probably the one that is the most controversial as far as different mm-hmm. of all the unpackings. Um, but one, I'm just so convicted 
by the picture that the Bible paints, especially getting into the details and putting all those pieces together and just the repetition of it all. And it really does make so much sense once I actually think through it all deeply. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, so one, I was just convicted by what I was finding in this unpacking. Two, as I began applying it to myself and, and my walk with God and my walk with others, it, I'm finding that it's changing me. Um, that I'm not sitting there saying, all right, you know what, let me get rid of bad anger, but keep the good righteous anger. I just made the decision a while back, you know what, I'm going to rid myself of all anger. Um, I'm going to, I'm going to let myself get angry, you know, cause I'm human, but then I'm going to immediately rid and it is difficult and I am not doing a good job with it, mm-hmm. but slowly. Right. And, and, and being more patient and, and also trying to counter it, it's because it, it's not about like preventing myself from getting angry. I don't need to do that. Um, but I do find it very hard once I get angry to, to release it. Um, but I'm countering it. And so I'm reminding myself, this is negative. This is acid to my soul. And as I get older, I don't want acid to my soul. It's been acid to relationships and friendships of mine. Uh, and I don't want that. Um, and so I've been pursuing more patience, more peace, more joy, more humility, um, just tr- more prayer, just trying to sit with God. Um, and, 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 you know, partly me making my effort and then partly just asking God to do his part and his effort Mm -hmm. and transform me getting ghost has been a huge Mm -hmm. thing because, you know, she was from the shelter was just scared of everything. So if I got angry, it made it worse. Mm -hmm. And so very quickly, um, I mean, within, within a week, I realized anger is not gonna be an option here if she poops and pees on the floor. Um, cause it'll just make it worse. It'll just make it worse. So I had to find some other way. Um, be patient in the midst of her going through this, right, et cetera. And so that was definitely a godsend. But anyways, the more that I've begun to do all this, um, I find myself freer. Um, Love is coming a little bit easier. I'm finding that, you know, I thought that I needed to get angry to change things. And I'm finding that it's almost like a reverse psychology that when I get angry, people are not mad that I got angry so they don't do it, even if they agree with what I, I was suggesting. Yeah. Where it's like also, you know, again, that reverse psychology, if people who know me know Shannon is, you know, easily triggered, can easily get frustrated or impatient when people don't show up or commitment or whatever. Um, and all of a sudden he's being really calm and he's not getting angry. It's almost like, because my fear is if I don't get angry, they'll think it's okay and they'll keep doing it. Hmm. Um, but what I'm finding is if I don't get angry and everyone knows me to, to get angry with that kind of stuff and I'm trying to be more patient and gentle and all that kind of thing, um, it's almost like, wow, now I feel even worse um, that, mm-hmm. that, I, that, I did, that I did that or whatever, and, and, and they're making changes. So if anything, the, my, one of my arguments for anger was it will influence change. I'm finding that was actually hindering change, and a release of the anger is actually what influences the change. So all of that, you know, so you have the scripture – but then you also have the practical application and it's changing me and it's changing circumstances. Um, I'm, I'm going to keep doing it. And like I said, this is not some, you know, gentle soul arguing for less anger. This is a easily angered, passionate, um, hmm. short tempered, impatient individual arguing for it. So, so we're going to leave you with that. Um, you know, you, you, you do with this, what you're going to do with this. Uh, we're praying that, 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 God's going to use this for the next step in your walk, the next level he wants to move you to, um, to, to release yourself of that anger, to realize that his anger is not there uh, for us believers. Now, the punishment may still be there, but it's a punishment not in anger, right? And it's, it's restorative, not yeah. punitive, et cetera. Um, just leave you to kind of chew on all that. 
And, you know, if you got questions, if you want to push back more, if you thought of other verses that, that we didn't address in this study, you can, you can email us at info at rekindlingministries.com. You can go to the website. Um, please, you know, another thing, too, and we said this a bunch, please listen to all the other episodes. Mm-hmm. Because when you start looking at all of them and the picture that's getting painted, it really makes each individual piece a stronger argument for that one. Yeah. Um, and we'll leave it at that. So that was the last of the the pieces that we wanted to unpack a bit and present to you. And uh, and so when we get together for the next episode, um, this may be a multi-part one, right? We'll see how that goes. Um, we're going to put all these pieces together. And we've already looked at all the details. So we won't go to the details. We're going to get to the implications. What's yeah. the big picture? What's the main point, the takeaway, et cetera, uh, of what all this means with the us being Christians in an evil world, serving an all-good God. Uh, and so with that... Have a have a good uh, morning or afternoon or evening whenever you <laughs> listen to this, it may be. and uh, and we'll talk to you uh, next time. Mm-hmm.